Who still remembers Pampiro Furpo? Who booked the screw job in Montreal? Who has a good friend named Weasel Dooley? Everyone knows it's corny. Who managed Bobby Eaton and Condry? Who managed Stan Lane and Dr. Tom? Who's sick and tired of Kenny Olivier? Everyone knows it's corny. Who took a shoot, fall off of the scaffolding? Who bled a gusher in a white suit? Who said Ronnie Garvin went up like the challenger? Everyone knows it's corny. It's Jim Cornette's drive through He'll answer questions from you. And he won the pony too. Thank you, fuck you, bye. 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 Hello again, friends. And you are our friends. And welcome to another edition of Jim Cornette's Drive Through right here to celebrate the opening of the baseball season. I'm your host, the great Brian Last. We have reviews. We have questions. We, we have questions, actually, this week, maybe more than the listeners. But we have so much more with this man, the star of the drive-thru, Mr. Jim Cornette. And what part of this program is celebrating baseball? Huh? The existence. Answer me that, you saucy thing. You're, you're exuberant there. You're saucy. All, you're, you're saucy. You're full of piss and vinegar. Vim and vigor, as they say. Or vinegar, as some Or vinegar, as some yeah. people almost said. <laughs> and, you, and you're celebrating baseball. We, we, we don't have any baseball talk on this program. You never Except know. Except when you do it. What do you think of baseball changing the rules this year? What rules are they changing? They've made the bases bigger, which they said will prevent <laughs> injury and also lead to more action. They have added a pitch clock. Pitchers have x amount of time to actually throw a pitch if they don't they're docked a pitch or given a well, strike now, now that's actually not a bad idea because that's one of the things to me of baseball i mean you can literally see the grass growing in the outfield between people actually doing something literally so i think they ought really? to have like five seconds throw the fucking ball or you're out somebody else come up here and, and and they ought to be throwing at the fucking batter. Let him try to defend himself with the bat. Now, I'd watch that. See, the problem is they're marketing baseball more towards you, who's never going to watch it, than they are towards people like me, who will watch it all the time. Well, see, at least it's, <laughs> it's not just down to wrestling. Everybody wants to get the people that are not interested and probably never going to be interested in what they're fucking doing. So they change it to where the people that were really interested in what they were fucking doing ain't interested in what they're fucking doing. You know, on this topic and to bring it back to wrestling, I just mentioned this to uh, some of my pals on the 605 opening day special. And I think I told you a little bit about this off the air. The other day I had a conversation with Suzanne. She had come in the room during the Kenny Omega El Hijo del Vikingo match. <clears throat> and when asked for a divorce, whatever we were watching it after she asked for the divorce. No, she actually turned and watched the match for the little bit that she was in here. She liked it. She asked a few questions about it that appealed to her. The tumble salts, the flips. She was the person it appealed to. So a few days later, we're talking and she asked me about that match. She never asked me about any match. She said, what did Jim think? I said, oh, you know, Jim 
hated it. It stood for everything he hates in life and everything he hates in the wrestling business. He absolutely hated it. And she said, what did you say? And I said, I said, I enjoyed it, but I understood what it was and I knew what to expect. And she said, well, I really liked it. And I would want to see that guy again. And I said, that's interesting. Because, you know, we always talk about how do you get the casual fan? Right. I said, what's his name? She couldn't remember his name. So I reminded her. It was El Hijo del Vikingo. And then she realized one of the reasons she didn't remember it was the word Vikingo is foreign to her. She speaks Spanish, but she never heard the word Viking used in this way in Spanish, I guess. The Hispanic people don't probably talk a lot about the Vikings. Just the paths that don't cross. Well, she actually asked, why don't they just call him the son of the Viking? And I said, well, that would be uh, blasphemous <laughs> to uh, his heritage, I guess. And then I said, okay, let's say you did remember his name. How would you see him again? What would you do? And she said, well, I would watch the show again the next week. And I said, aha, is he even going to be on the show the next week? That's why they don't capture people. That's one reason why. But I thought it was an interesting conversation. So basically, she liked the guy. She'd want to watch the guy again. But because the attention was all on what he was doing, she didn't remember his name, but she could go back to the program next week, but he's not going to be there because generally anytime anybody does anything that gets over with anybody on that show, you don't see him again for six weeks. But so, so then, yes, and, and unless she's going to sit down and go, well, let me try to get on the internet and find this guy you know yeah, and the other thing ha- is she actually because she didn't stay for the whole match i mean that's the other thing while she was in the office she stayed a little bit longer because she was into what they were doing but then she went about her day or her evening it was nighttime when i told her that kenny omega won the other guy won in the match she couldn't believe it <laughs> remember i told you it was a star making performance if they had stopped at a certain point it really was she thought he was the star and Kenny Omega, the guy buff and big in the match, was there to make the star look good. That's kind of my point. For people who don't know the... Remember why I used to scream in the Ring of Honor production truck? Which one are we pushing? Because you couldn't fucking tell. They just do all the shit that each guy knows how to do, regardless of whether they were supposed to be or not. But she liked El Hijo del Vikingo, and uh, I think she'll like this coming baseball season. We've had so much great baseball talk here on the show, Jim, a real tribute to the upcoming season. Yes, yes. Well, I, and I can't wait to see those bigger bases. Why don't, they, it, why don't they make the bases about six by six feet and fucking elevate them where you've got to jump up four or five feet to get up on it? But once you're up on it, the only way that they can fucking call you out is if they jerk you off of it. See, I want a no substances band league. Just let these guys, let's see how far these fucking guys can hit it and let's see who can get them out. What are you talking about? Like LSD and heroin too and bath salts well, and those fucking are, those aren't really prefer- Tide Pods and things? That, that could be fun. Give a bunch of people on LSD and bath salts and Tide Pods baseball bats well other than lsd those other ones other than lsd those other ones are not performance enhancing i think i'm talking more about steroids and growth hormone i bet you some performances would be enhanced you get a bunch of fucking guys with baseball bats on fucking bath salts and say okay the ones in the red are the enemies go 
Do you like the movie The Warriors? I don't remember. Was it about Hawk and Animal? No, it was about guys with baseball bats in New York City. There was a gang oh, dressed yeah, like baseballs. Yeah, and That was from the 80s, right? 79, I think. Uh, I've, I've, I got into wrestling business by then. I slowed down on my movies. Unless they were unpopular ones. I used to go on dates to see a lot of stinky movies where there'd be nobody in the fucking theater. I can't believe you didn't see this one. It seems like it'd be right down your alley. Well, maybe that's, I didn't want to meet the warriors in a dark alley. I don't, they weren't that bad, actually. I mean, they just, they were cunning, but they weren't really bad. But this show is bad. <laughs> Any, anything you want to talk about here this well, week? <laughs> would you like to hear about my attic insulation? Um, all morning, I've had the duct cleaners here. I've had the uh, electrician here. Uh, my, my man, Blake, my dedicated electrician from Tom Drexler. Call the plumber whose name is his number, but he does heating and air, electric, plumbing. I think he's he's starting to do appendectomies. I'm not sure. Or he could do the sex change operations, the adedictomies. But anyway, I've had a bunch Horrible. of people over here today because, you know, the new rooms we got remodeled, one of the things I told you I got was the spray foam insulation, right? You were bragging about it. You said it was your new favorite thing. And I'm, I'm infatuated now with the spray foam insulation. It is like they encapsulate your room. Your, it's, it's like you're in a styrofoam cooler to where the hot stays hot, the cold stays cold. You're not losing any air, not no draftiness. I mean, it's just amazing. So I, I had my contractor and the spray foam insulation guy look at my attic spaces because Obviously, they didn't even have this shit when the house was originally built. And when I renovated 20 years ago, I didn't know it existed. So anyway, I said, well, look, how are my attic spaces looking? I got a big one over on one end of the house. It's like 20 by 40. But it, you can only stand up like in the very middle of it. It's slanted, right? So it's not like a big giant room. But I got one over there. And then I got one smaller one that the the last air conditioning and furnace unit that I have to replace. The, the, the furnace is inside, air conditioning unit outside. The last one I've got to replace and everything will be brand spanking new is in this other smaller attic space. I said, so while we're going we're gonna to do everything at the same time, so what do you think, insulation guy? And he looked and he said, well, I don't know why they did that. I'm like, oh, shit, I've heard this before. <laughs> now, you know, this insulation you got down here, well, now that's fine. That's okay. But the spray foam is going to be the super-duper stuff anyway. We all know that, right? But he's saying, but this stuff is good. But I don't know why they did that because they put the builder grade batting insulation on one part of the wall over there but there's none no none over on the other side and on this part so it's like having a cup with one side all your fucking air just spilling out so they got to take that out and then spray foam where that is plus the places where there's nothing and while we were up there i said well let me ask you this i said should that light that every time i come up here and i've and flick it onto stay. That's where I store my financial records and, and paperwork and things in carefully labeled boxes up in that area. I said, every time I come up here and turn this light on, it kind of flickers a little bit. I said, now that I look at it real good, should it be in what looks like a 70 year old socket hanging from a wire that's screwed into one of the fucking <laughs> eaves? 
I said, is that to code? And then, no, that's really not to code. And then I need some more flooring area because some of the, the area is not floored up there and I can store more shit. So we're making notes on all this stuff. But then the problem becomes that the attic access door, this little hatch door to get is only 32 inches high by 24 inches wide. And so whatever comes out of there has to be smaller than that, obviously. And so they're going to have to get this insulation and stick it in those tall yard leaf bags and slide it out like giant fucking rectangular blocks through the, the square peg through the round hole. And then to avoid carrying it through the rest of the house, we're going to throw it out the fucking window of the vault. But anyway, so if stunning Steve Bradshaw, my neighbor to the back, sees bags of shit just suddenly flying out of a top floor window someday in the next week or two, he'll know what's going on. Then we go to the other side, and they say, well, the thing is, when they remove the, the uh, furnace, it, it, there's no way to get to the other side of the, of the furnace that exists there to get the insulation that they need to clean out and all the shit to spray the stuff they need to spray unless the furnace is gone because it's a big-ass thing in the middle of the space. So now I've had to coordinate also with Tom Drexler, you fine folks, and let me, let me send a shout-out to Josh in the heating and air department. So one day they're going to have to come out and take out the old air, air heating unit, the furnace. And then once they do that, then the next day they're going to come in and clean out all the old insulation and all the shit. And, and, and then they're going to come the next day and they're going to spray foam the new insulation. And then they're going to come the next day and put the furnace back in the attic space. And today I've had the ducts cleaned and had the electrician in to put new lights according to code into my attic spaces. So by cracky, I'm going to have the, the, the cleanest attics in all of Louisville, Kentucky. But it's a pain in the ass. You heard it, folks. Tom Drexler, a pain in the ass. Hey! <laughs> How are your attics there in New Last Manor? Have you explored your attic spaces yet to see what you could find there? We have a big attic space that uh, eventually in the next few years I'm going to build out. Well, but that doesn't mean that you, you can't go up there now and see what's going on. I know what's going on up there. I don't spend time up there or anything. Did anyone leave anything there? Is there any mysterious trunks or potentially secret doors no nope. how many secret doors do you have in your home not answering that question well when i was a kid that's where my dad hid the playboys in the attic and then when i discovered them there they tried to hide them in uh by the laundry but i found them there too i thought you were gonna say that's where he hid the playboys in the secret door <laughs> no 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 you 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 can't have lived in a house for very long if you don't have at least one secret door but anyway we're going to keep no secrets today from the people and this is actually your program and we've got all kinds of goddamn drama and turmoil and and uncle dave has now is apologizing to people in his own particular fashion as they used to say <laughs> down south <laughs> Uh, and we'll talk about some of that. So let me get the Big Spring Spectacular sale out of the way. Saturday, April the 8th, 
at jimcornett.com at noon Eastern time. The brand new merchandise. It's been so many years in the making, so we've offered just completely brand spanking new type of stuff here. The uh, December 2022 issue of Inside the Ropes with me on the cover and a six-page cover interview story, as they say. Uh, but but you get the whole magazine. And boy, it's a humdinger, too. Full color. Well, actually, the text is still in black and white, so you can read it. It's not like a rainbow fucking type, but all the pictures are in color. And uh, that's going to be available, personally autographed by myself. Also, by arrangement with Inside the Ropes, the October 2016 live event that Jim Ross and I did with Kenny McIntosh in, in London available on DVD for the first time ever. Brett the Hitman Hart comes in for the last 20 or 30 minutes, and that will be available. And also, as we've been talking about, the brand new breast cancer pink and black action figure from Figures Toys, uh, which um, we went back and forth, and now the, the cult has spoken. $10 off of each figure sold will go to the American Cancer Society uh, in honor of all the folks in the in the cult and the listeners that have had cancer in their families and etc., you know, a lot of people weighed in on this, and so I think it's going to be. But there's a thousand of these. We're trying to raise ten thousand dollars. So you can go to jimcornett.com right now and look at pictures of all this stuff on the home page of the website, as they say, and. The sale starts Saturday, April 8th at noon Eastern. And I, can I read you a real quick email I got, Brian? I know this is your program. No, we love your emails. They're always uh, well, illuminating. I, I used to, uh, well, I, I should be illuminated. The electrician was here. Boy, I tell you what, you could shoot television in my attics right now. Yeah, when, whenever you come you down shoot here. shoot television. Thing, oh, okay, go ahead. They're, yes, they're bright as, oh my God. It looks like high noon up there. If you ever come down here, the first thing I'm going to show you is my attic. And then the secret door will close and you'll... The first thing I will do is call for help. And the second thing I'll do is run. Well, what are you going to do? That's I'm having this thing soundproofed. Wait, so who's in this attic? Me and you? You've captured me? I'll get out of there. No, I'm not in. I'm not going in there with you. Okay. That's scary. Anyway, so I got an email from Victor. Uh, actually, we both did. Hey, Brian and Jim. I think he wanted to say love the show, but it says live the show. Maybe he does live according to our principles. But Victor says, wanted to let you know that I was at a meet and greet for a second-rate comic con here in Richmond today. I assume he means Richmond, Virginia. There is a Richmond, Kentucky, but, you know, it's a it's a small place. He goes on, there are very few wrestling personalities that appear, so I try to get them all. Britt Baker kicked me out of her line because I was wearing a Jim Cornette face shirt. Oh, wow. She is the only AEW or wrestling personality that did that. The Rainboy Cow... Rainbow. Rain the Rainboy. <laughs> He says, the Rainbow Cowboy Adam Page didn't. Chris Statlander didn't. Anna Jay didn't. Matt Hardy didn't. But Britt Baker kicked poor Victor. 
Poor Victor out of her line because he was wearing a cornet face shirt. Brian, how many? Well, you don't know because you didn't stand there and watch. But at numerous comic cons, wrestling fan fest, whatever the case, I've had people come up with Kevin Steen shirts or then Kevin Owen shirts or the, the Buckaroos. And of course, they would be chided in an entertaining fashion, and a good time would be had by all. I've never heard anybody's feelings. Nobody ever went away actually pissed about it. There have been a few pictures posed with me given the eye roll and the fucking, you know, uh, finger or whatever. But uh, again, no, she kicked him out. Just not even like, go change your shirt. Just get out of my fucking line. How dare you? It'd be worth it if she actually got up from the table and like pushed him out the door. Like, you go, you get out, and just if if then you get I a story. wonder is there video? Possibly she gave him the bums rush, the the hair of the head and the seat of the pants, and out she went, or out he went, or maybe it was that, like one of her uh, house show matches and she missed everything she was trying to do. <laughs> <laughs> but see now, Britt, I've actually, I bet you that I indirectly paid for at least one thing that you have in your home right now because I was responsible for helping Adam Cole, your loving better half, get booked uh, quite extensively during his time in Ring of Honor when I was there. So I, I, I think at least you owe one of my fans of the, who's offering to pay he was standing in the paying line, not the comp line, but the paying line. He's going to give you money, but you didn't like his shirt. That's too bad because she's going to be seeing a whole lot more of that shirt. And, you know, there's <laughs> been someone at ringside. Well, no, now, come Are you trying to say, are you trying to say that now that whenever Britt Baker wrestles at an AEW event, whether it be television or one of these off-brand Mickey Mouse house shows or whatever that people should take off their windbreaker or their sweat jacket or whatever and expose a cornet face shirt just to just to tick her off over that? Is that what you're trying to say? That would be something. I don't even know if it's necessary. I was going to say the last several AEW shows, it feels like there's someone ringside or right in camera view wearing the Jim Cornette face shirt. And in fact, the AEW house show where she botched all the moves, Moxley was in the main event. Moxley, after his match, had a cornet face shirt on? No, that's not what I was going to say. I think it was after his match, but I don't think he was bleeding, so maybe it was before the match. Took a selfie with the fan sitting at ringside wearing the cornet face shirt. Well, there you go. Even, even and we kill him a whole lot worse than we <laughs> kill Brit. Poor Brit. <laughs> Britt ain't the worst wrestler in the world. There's, but, still, there's still time. Well, I don't know. I think I think Moxley's got that nailed. He'll do anything he can to keep that that uh, honor around his neck. But uh, but anyway, so Victor, I'm terribly sorry. I would I'd say I'd forge Britt Baker's autograph and send it to you, but I don't. You know, she's got notoriously poor penmanship, being a doctor and all. Just go to Yelp and say she gave you a screwed up root canal. There you go. Yeah. Or just what did what did Leno do to fucking 
Colette <laughs> Foley's teeth. Yeah, it bonded them or whatever with the white veneers, and they were eating breakfast at the hotel the next day, and the shit fell out in her plate of fucking scrambled <laughs> eggs. <laughs> All right, it's your program, fella. It is my program, fella, and we have a lot to go over. So why don't we start with something that I think everyone at home will want to listen to, everyone at work, wherever the hell you are. A&E's biography, again, for whatever reason, one-hour episodes this past week, and one of them was about someone you are, of course, associated with whenever anyone thinks of him, Yokozuna. Yeah, and honestly, I thought this was one of the better ones. I, and, you know, I mean, honestly, yes, you could have shown so much more video footage and highlight. It could have been a two-hour show, but the sad thing is, honestly, you know, it, it, maybe an hour was right for Yoko because of his career, unfortunately, being brief. I mean, they did skip over the first four years or so with just, you saw him, uh, you know, at a Florida clip in 1987, his debut down there, and then, you know, pretty much they skipped right ahead to the WWF, but nevertheless, um, I think the thing, this was one of the sadder ones because not only was everything they said about him, Trey was always laughing. He was like a big kid and you know, he had mischievous grin or whatever. And of course he's sitting there 600 pounds, but he's a mischievous little kid, but it shows how much the whole family loved him. And they do. We've talked about the, the Samoan family, at whatever point that one was successful would take care of the other ones that were not necessarily so at that point in time. And they would help each other out. And the story that Fatu told about Rikishi for the modern, you know, audience about, you know, when he was, Yoko was on top and Fatu was doing okay and he needed a furnace. And he said, you know, he gave me a check so that my kids would have heat. And, uh, that's what it, it was. It's sad, but you know, like I said, maybe an hour was, was right on this, this one for this, you know, particular subject. But, um, you know, I knew, I didn't know about his life as a kid because, you know, and honestly, it's always hard when you know, <laughs> All the Samoans come in the locker room and it's like, you know, they're all related, but you can't keep track of who's, who's kid and who's uncle and who's nephew and et cetera, et cetera. But I knew obviously that he had trained with Afa and Sika and, you know, they sent him to Pensacola along with Samu and Fatu, uh, who were training at the time down there because that's where the Samoans were located, but that was before Allentown. But I didn't know that, you know, that he was a kid who was going to get in, getting in trouble and they, you know, his parents sent him to them for some kind of guidance. But did you see the Florida clip on his debut? It was Barry and Kendall Wyndham against... As against was, Camp Cornette. Well, he was, he was against <laughs> Coquina. Coquina was Yoko's name when he first started. And his partner was Jimmy Backlund, who would later become Jimmy Del Rey. And you didn't see a clip of Jimmy, but you heard the ring introduction, so his name was mentioned. You didn't see a clip of him, but I thought that's insane that that's 1987. 
In six years, I will be managing both of these guys in the WWF. Coquina as the WWF champion and Jimmy Backlund, a, a perennial Florida underneath guy, as suddenly one of the heavenly bodies. So that was kind of... But did you see, again, to go back and look at the first couple of years of Yoko Rodney's career... Could was he around what maybe three thirty in his first match? He was. I've seen you know Samu and Fatu bigger when they were the Samoan SWAT team. He was you know he was still the big Samoan, but you had no idea he was going to weigh six hundred pounds. And that's how you know the early talent that he showed: the sharp splash, the facials, the aggression. Moving like that for his size, that's why he attracted so much attention. But I'd forgotten how small he was when he started out. You know, I mean, that's the thing. You started seeing pictures of him in the magazines. And even though you're saying he was smaller when he started out, he was still bigger than Samu and Fatu or the Tonga Kid, who we were used to seeing in the magazines. Yeah, and, and you know, they... <laughs> All the Samoans over time get bigger. Obviously, Rikishi, you know, was, what, 100, 125 pounds smaller than his Rikishi weight when he started. But it, it, I just, uh, still, it, it was shocking because when I got, by six years later, he was over 500 and something. I think when they said, when I got there, he started in the WWF. He's 25 years old. Because when he started wrestling, he was 21, but he had two kids. And that's what the Samoans said. Well, you know, we got to find you something to do, maybe get in the family business. And then they could pitch him to Vince because, you know, they had Vince's ear and they had the, you know, the in. And, you know, I just, again, looking at that, you would have never dreamed that he would get that fucking large at that quick of a time. When he came in in October 92, I came in in July 93, and they were saying that he had gained, you know, that he was in the upper fours when he made his debut there, and he was well into the fives by the time I got there. And I know, you know, Vince uh, would introduce him in those early at 505 pounds. Vince loves to say shit like that. Vince could have been... P.T. Barnum in a previous life, or he could have been the carnival barker on the, you know, in the, on the stage in front of the midway. And he's eight feet tall or he's 500 pounds. But, um, and, and that's another thing is that they showed the footage that I don't know if it ever aired or if they were just testing it out. It was dark stuff, but of them trying to pitch him as another member of the Samoan family. Well, this is Coquina Maximus. And no, it never Coquina. aired. Never aired. Okay. I didn't think it did because that was the thing. Sergeant Slaughter, they had the clip. You know, Vince was like, what the fuck? It wasn't working, and you could tell it wasn't working from the lack of audience reaction. And Sarge told Vince, well, you got seven Samoans now. It, or VK, Vince said, "You got. I've got seven Samoans now. And Sarge said, what about a sumo? And that was the thing, I think, that made the difference because 
Vince always loved the Samoan family, and I'm not saying that, you know, it, he shouldn't have given any of them a job, but there was always, remember when, when instead of just letting Fatu go at one point and just let him go away and, and so we can miss him, they made him the Sultan, like he was a masked Arab and this and that. They had so many Samoans for so long that when Yoko comes along, he didn't stand out because it was in the same vein. When they completely changed the gimmick and put him with Fuji and presented as, as something that they'd never had in the WWF before, a sumo wrestler. And, you know, they, they had to make the point of mentioning in, in the show that, what, what, how did they phrase it? Um, American knowledge of Japanese culture was in its infancy and, and et cetera, so that it, it wouldn't be taken as offensive. Well, I think we all still knew what fucking sumo wrestlers were, but for the sake of, you know, the gimmick, um, a lot of the WWF fans didn't. Well, I mean, no one knew what the word Yokozuna was unless you were watching sumo, but what was the other option? Well, you know, here is Sumo Sam. I mean, yeah, there were only so many things you could do. Uh, you know, but the, anyway, the one thing, what, go ahead. Uh, yeah. Just, I wanted to say, cause, um, I hadn't watched any clips from the Royal Rumble 93 in a long time where for whatever reason, Randy Savage thought it was a good idea to try to pin Yokozuna, causing Yokozuna to throw him over the top rope and win the Royal Rumble. You know why he did that? Why? Because he had done the spot before where the big, probably with Andre, where Andre kicked him off out of a cover over the top rope. And he said, you know, it'd be neat, brother. Well, that's what and he that's did, fun. and it made no sense, and it made him look like a fool. <laughs> but it, but it was cool. <laughs> but if I got Yoko over. But Yokozuna debuted on TV in October, October, November, December, just having squash matches with Mister Fuji, who was all of a sudden wearing a new outfit, not feuding with anyone. Not to say he wasn't working with anyone in the house shows, but he was just wrestling on TV in squash matches. Right. It was shocking to me as a kid that he was going to be the one to win the Royal Rumble. And then it really made him a star. When people talk about that era, he's someone that most fans would know right away. So there's a great example of taking a guy who'd been on TV for a few months but not doing anything, and in one night... Yeah, well, that's... Vince McMahon especially knows how to make a monster. And that's what they did here, and it was classic. You know, by the, they had... A guy who nobody had seen before, but was incredibly impressive and had, you know, uh, talent in the ring beyond his level of experience and is a fucking giant in some fashion. And all you got to do is smash him over with those squash matches. And his stuff got over. I believed his shit when I was at ringside. And honestly, as, as you know, he could be stiff if he wanted to be and flatten a motherfucker, but also. He actually bonsai dropped me uh, two or three times. And fuck, you can't tell. It, it, it was like a pillow being dropped on my chest, but you couldn't tell the difference when you watch it back. So There's his, a few guys he did not do it so lightly. Well, to. no, yes, <laughs> and I'm not saying that, but you, unless he just wanted to, you couldn't really tell a fucking difference in most of it. It looked great, so his stuff, and they smashed him over, and then he wins the Rumble. And, you know, that's the way that you, in the territory days, that was the way a monster was made, and you could 
get somebody that nobody in that particular territory had ever seen. In modern day 1992-3 WWF, it was harder because you had seen most people, but this guy was so new and he had been, you know, I mean, the AWA and blah, blah, blah. But for that wide of an audience, he came out of nowhere and it got over and he had a different look. So anyway, and, you know, all the locker room stuff was right, you know, joking around, making faces and the the eating as well. But uh, I'd <laughs> again... Poor, poor Brett. No wonder he was fucking pissy. That whole WrestleMania nine thing. Oh yeah. Good Lord. Um, Hogan shows up. Didn't even bother to bleach his eyebrows. Skinnier yeah. than you've ever seen him before with a black eye. It's okay. Put him right where he belongs right now at this stage. Him and Brutus against Money Inc. When he showed up at the end of the night, even me as a kid, I was like, oh no. And a lot of other people felt that way. But in hindsight. Yokozuna beating Hulk Hogan meant more for Yokozuna than it would have if he did at that point in time if he'd have beat Brett. That's why beating Luger right after or Luger beating Yokozuna right after that would have meant so much. But not six to nine months after that. No. Um and not even know, then. Yeah. <laughs> A lovely quick clip of me and Yoko on Regis and Kathy. Do you know I got paid twice for that? Why twice? For that, t- they reran it. Oh, oh, of course. I, I, when when you do Regis and Kathy Lee, you do not. The WWF doesn't pay you. Regis and Kathy Lee pays you. You get scale whatever scale was. It was five hundred and sixty-two dollars and forty-seven cents, or whatever at the time. But son of a gun, they reran it. Like six months later, I got a second check in the mail. I'll have you know. That was a bit of a hard handshake with Regis there, Jim. He was a stiff son of a gun. He was <laughs> so exuberant. He really, honest to God, he was a huge wrestling fan and loved that shit and loved to do that. Ah, you know, the stuff with Yoko and everything. And hey, he was just very into it. That's why he had some of the boys on his show all that time. Kathy Lee was uh, uh, not there that day. Who was it? That uh, every single time you talk about this, you ask that I question. I can never and we... remember that woman's name. <laughs> Neither one. She of was them. she was a non-entity in in my experience at on the show. That and you know what? I felt bad because they wouldn't let Fuji go out. What do you mean? They did because the show they wanted. Well, who's going to be speaking? Well, that's me. And it was kind of like, well, what's he there for? Well, Fuji's his manager. I'm his American spokesperson, and they they just well it. It would be confusing to the soccer moms and middle-aged oh, ladies come on. watching the show. I don't know. Who's producing? But, Kevin Dunn? It would be confusing that Fuji there waving the Japanese flag? I'm just telling you. It was, so Fuji was there backstage? Um, as I recall, he, he yes. Did he get paid? As I recall, he got paid. Somebody paid. <laughs> I guarantee <laughs> you if they didn't pay him, Vince paid him. But anyway, um... And the 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 Undertaker matches, that was the, we were talking about when they did the Taker, one of the many Taker documentaries. God, there's been so much programming. I'd have killed for documentaries on Buddy Rogers in the 80s from his career in the 50s and 60s. Um, but the, the matches with Taker, I said, that was the first time that Taker really got to show what he could do athletically because what it had been 
You know, he debuted in what, 90, 91 or 92, Taker? Undertaker debuted Survivor Series 90. 90, all right. Well, November so, 90, so the end of the year. So it was at 91, 92, almost the end of 93. That had been three years he'd had El Gigante and he had this, oh. but not anybody athletic. Yoko was not fit the role that Vince liked because he was a monster and a giant in his own way. But at the same time, he was still so athletic that he could do enough shit that Taker could do his shit. The, the, you know, the more flying clotheslines and bigger, you know, looking things that, you know, he was capable of, but didn't have anybody to, to realistically do it with. So Undertaker's in the middle of his run working with monsters and giants. He started with Kamala, then Giant Gonzalez, eventually Yokozuna. Do you remember who was in the middle there? In between? Well, it was, Sid, was it? No, Sid. There wasn't a no Sid. A yet. Sid. There was it. Bundy. It was Mr. Hughes. Oh, Mr. Hughes. That's right. And then uh, he and then he was gone. Uh, and yeah, then he was gone. And then you were gone. Did you ever actually witness him fall asleep in the ring? No, I saw him fall asleep in the locker room and like in in promos and even at you know. You couldn't tell a gorilla because it wasn't lit up real well. It's dark anyway, right? But but yeah, not in the ring. Uh, but see, again, I was only doing TV and pay-per-view. I wasn't doing most of the house. It is selected house shows, garden every once in a while, whatever. So I wasn't on a road with them all the time. I was there uh, the day when he broke the toilet. I remember them coming in and talking about that. That Yoko they, Zuna? you know, yeah, that they mentioned on that he cut himself bad too. It was it was bad. We felt sorry for him. What's well, porcelain? Was, that's a, that's sharp. yeah, yeah. He was just too big for his environment, and you know, even before he got as big as he was going to get. Um, and I, there was a clip of me for people who asked on Twitter. That's still some of the stuff they shot uh in preparation for the Hall of Fame 2017 when I indicted the Rock and Roll Express and they got comments and etc uh so it wasn't new but I'm not going to sue or anything because it was it was me and I still feel the same way but anyway but yeah the at that point with with his size getting out of hand they started trying to talk to him and who who was it that was asked was it Keith Elliott Greenberg that was estimating his weight, he was a bad estimator. He kept saying, oh, he he must have been over 600 pounds. He was over 600 pounds in 94 and 95. It, it, by Survivor Series of 96, at which point in time that was the last time that he could wrestle in New York State, and that's when they ended up, you know, calling for the physical that he couldn't pass, and the company let him go he was 802 is what i was told because they that and also bruce he's spoiled he's also bruce 802 story. pounds but no 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 he's not only his ego no um and no bruce spoiled the whole duke story because he didn't do the duke program at home he did the duke program at duke Remember, that's the way you've always told in, me. Well, yes, because I was on the phone with, unless he went all the way to North Carolina and make it look good, 
I was one calling the fucking phone number, but here's the deal. It was, I can't remember all the dates, but remember they had turned him babyface in 95, right? And, or was it early 96? I think it may have been 96. It was 96 because, okay, remember Yoko was gone for a while. And then they brought him back and put him and Owen together as a surprise tag team that ended up winning the belts. That was sometime later in 95, I believe. At one point, Yoko, that had either been an injury and or something that they were trying, you know, he was trying to do to help his physical condition. And then he comes back and then I get Vader and we turn, we all turn on Yoko and beat him up and he's a baby face, but Vader breaks his leg sometime like around WrestleMania time in 96. And that's where they showed the shot of Vince loved the idea of a stretcher. They can't, the EMTs, the medical people, they can't take Yokozuna out on a stretcher. They have to take him out on a forklift because he's so big. That's what the visual Vince wanted. And they show it in the documentary, right, when they say that's how they have to weigh him at the shows now, and then they show him being carted off on the thing. Well, yes, uh, it was it was footage of the angle where Vader broke his, broke his leg in quotation marks, and they carried him out on Raw on a forklift. But it was also true because we had to do the same thing, to be honest and not to embarrass anybody, but with Mark Henry and Big Show here in OVW, when they were sent down here, we we had to send them to the junkyard because a regular doctor's office scale, the old kind the with the weights that balance that you can't do in a bouncy ring or the digital or whatever, only goes up to 300. And then Danny Davis, we had one of the medical type scales that slide the weight across that had a counterweight that would go up to 400. So in other words, the regular 300 pound scale, if you put the specific counterweight on the top of it, then you could max out at 400, but that still wasn't big enough for Mark and show. So we had to drive them once a month over to the fucking junkyard. So, and Lee and, um, Yoko was a lot bigger than that. But anyway, Bruce said that he, he insisted on doing the program at home. That was not the case. They broke his leg. He was off. And they actually sent him to Duke. And then Vince one day, we're writing, says, well, who's heard about Yoko? And we, well, we hadn't heard anything about it. Well, JC, now it is my job. Call either, it was every week or every two weeks, whatever regular period of time that he wanted to, you know, wanted me to check in, right? And I guess the first week, he had probably been there a few weeks, right? So the Yoko, how you doing? Oh, brother, brother, it's great. You know, they got the fluid off. They're getting the fluid off. Because one of the things that also, when you go on a, a strict medical supervised diet, especially because that's what he would end up passing away of is, fluid around his heart and retention of fluid, they'll give you the diuretics, right? And I know a former acquaintance of mine, they sucked about 120 pounds of fluid off of him in two weeks. So Yoko says they've got a, I'm down over 100 pounds. They got all this fluid off of his grime, doing great. 
Okay, you're beautiful. Great, right? Call you next week or whatever. Next time. Yeah, brother, I'm down. I'm down over 75 pounds. Yeah, it's great. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. Okay. And, you know, here's the thing. You can't argue with Yoko. He was such a big, you know, I, I liked him. I'm just, you know, having to report what I'm told. By the third call, brother, I'm, I'm down over 50 pounds. Yes, uh, he did lose weight at the start of the program until he was able to, as what I was told, find somebody there that he could bribe to bring him shit after hours, under the table, behind the scenes, handed in the window, whatever the case may be. And he ended up after whatever, and then he did... I'm pretty sure I remember leave early and say, I got to go home, you know, something with the kids, whatever. But I think he either ended up even or gaining weight when he went to Duke, because that's what we were saying around the office, because, you know, this was obviously he was still with us, so it wasn't in bad taste, but we were saying we sent him to the Duke weight loss clinic and he ate it. So... At the, but that's the story that I heard was that he had found, and I think, I, I'm not thinking it was like somebody else's family members that were visiting. I think he found somebody at Duke to bribe, which is maybe why, maybe there's some kind of settlement they didn't want to be involved because of some malpractice. Stephen P. New could jump in on that. Um, but anyway, But that was the thing. So by Survivor Series 96, and that was in Madison Square Garden, and the entrance way they used to use back in the old days was from the side, as I'm sure you remember. And it was a short aisleway. And by the time it was the eight-man tag, and he he got off on the on the rock bottom. Whoever he rock bottomed felt it. It was that was kind of stiff, and something else happened. And then by the time he walked from the ring back down that short side aisleway and got behind the curtain, he had to sit down in a chair to rest to get the rest of the way down the hallway to the locker room and the commissioner saw him. And that's, you know, when they, well, this can't be, but I mean, he was enormous at that point. And, and honestly, the indie footage they showed afterwards, he was bigger there than he was ever in the WWF, and I don't know if anybody ever weighed him at that point, but I wouldn't be surprised if he was over 900 pounds. From from the indie footage of the last year of his life, based on the last time that I saw him and had any idea of his general weight, it just, it it was striking. Hey, listen, WCW stayed away from him. Yeah, well, I mean, they had they would have had the same problems in any place. And I think there was probably, I don't know that they made a big play for him, but also I don't know that there was a lot of loyalty with the Samoan family and Vince to the point where I don't know if he ever even asked or tried to get booked down there. They certainly didn't say anything about it on this, but it's a... It's a house organ production. How but, different would your life be today if Vince had blocked the Samoan SWAT team from coming in in 89? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Well, it, our, our, uh, the Midnight Express has run for a couple months there in WCW 
uh, would have been a lot easier physically if we hadn't had to bounce around for those guys while George Scott was booking. But um, anyway, but that was the show. I mean, you're, and then obviously the story he he goes to England for the you know the tour over there and passes away in a hotel room, and it, that's where just it was really so sad. You can tell all the family. It's been over twenty years, and they're still you know, uh, broken up as they should be. But it just, that was the sad part to me. And and again, you never heard anybody say anything bad about Yoko. Maybe a couple of the job guys he might have landed on. There was one guy, I swear to God, he, if he didn't break his sternum, I don't know how. It was full I know force. that one clip. I can't oh. remember who that was, but holy shit. He and bounces. I, he bounces off the guy's yeah. sternum. It's incredible. And it, it, I, I don't, even think that the, I don't know whether the guy did something or whether Yoko just fucking misjudged it and was like, oh shit. But his shit, uh, it was believable. You know who I never realized it until a little while back and I saw a few things with him and then here again. It seems like low key, Greg Valentine's like the coolest guy in the world. <laughs> <laughs> Greg's very laid back. Yeah. Just very laid back. But yeah, and, and, Again, Yoko, that's the thing is, can you imagine, I've talked about this before, we, we've talked about his matches, can you imagine the athlete that he could have been at 350 when he was doing that shit with The Undertaker at 600? It was just, you know, to be strong enough to move that weight around. And but that's that was another problem. Then at the end was that he he was getting to where he couldn't move it in the right places, and he was there. That remember that babyface run where he leg dropped me in Indianapolis and basically sat on the side of my head, so where now I can't turn my head nearly as far to the right as I can to the left. And after he's like, "Oh, brother, I'm sorry, I got to step off." I, oh, you can't be mad at him. He didn't do it on purpose. He tried to take care of me, you know, incessantly, always. So, you know, he was the first one to say, "I'm sorry," before I even told him that. Yeah, it cracked about seven times on the way around. But it, you know, at at that weight, if he couldn't control you in the air with what he was doing with you, it could be dangerous. It could, like I said, it could be dangerous. Most normal people are going, what the fuck? This shit, when you do it right, is dangerous. But that that did get to be a problem. Well, of course, that was another episode of A&E's Biography, and we'll review any of the other ones that are interesting going forward now. Well, and, and let, me, let me say it here while we're on the subject. The other biography was Charlotte, and, it, and I like Charlotte. But it was the same thing with the Rivals episode, was Brock Lesnar versus Roman Reigns. It had, it was That was four years ago. For what are we doing now? Historical retrospectives on shit from last Tuesday? I don't want to see biographies of people who are still in their 20s. I don't want to see a historical... 20s. Well, it, it, Paige, okay. Soraya, she was last week. That's true. Yeah, that's why I don't want to see biographies of people in their 20s, and I don't want to see historical retrospectives of shit that... We reviewed on this podcast three or four years ago. I've, so we're going to, the stuff that's of, of, of meatiness and weight, we will, we will be reviewing. All right. Well, the rest of you can watch the Mad Cat Moss biography this Sunday on A&E. 
But Jim, you may not be watching. Mosh Pit, Mosh Pit Jones is more marketable. You may not be watching Mosh Pit Jones on Biography, but you could potentially listen to Mosh Pit Jones if you had a band and somehow got the band distributed. And well, if you had your Raycons. Well, yes, and the big thing is probably the distribution and the getting the band to begin with and and then getting people to listen to it. Because the Raycons, that's the easy part. You can get Raycons all day long, premium audio at the perfect price point. I love that alliteration. And the thing is, folks, again, the Raycons have been with us for so long. We've told you how great they are, but now they've not only got the everyday earbuds, but they have low-latency gaming headphones, and that sounds almost contagious. Low-latency <laughs> gaming headphones, and they got a speaker with a battery that'll last all night long at your next party, and the Raycon started half the price of other premium audio brands. You can listen to what you want and who you want, when you want, and how you want, and you don't have to listen to the other everyday nuisances and distractions that are, that constantly bother you. You can soundtrack your own life, and because, as I mentioned before, they started half the price of the other premium audio brands, you can get a pair and a spare and still pay less than you would with some of those other crooks. You can do business with these crooks and spend much less money, and you can keep one in in your desk, one on the nightstand, one in your bag, one in the car, you can get about eight pairs. So that actually just get one pair and just don't ever take them out. No, that's not advised. Uh, you should take them out of your ear. And of course, you're going to have to charge them at some point. Well, couldn't you just plug them in while they're in your ears? And then, boy, I'll tell you what, your hair what? would stand up. That's not the charge, way it works. Charge your Raycons while they're in your ears. Your hair will stand up. You'll look like Don King. Don't, and you can't, and there is a charger that wouldn't even facilitate this way of charging it. So Stick your finger ah, in the light socket, then. Don't do and, that! Jesus, don't joke about that. Well, you know, but see, that's a thing you can't... Who has a finger skinny enough to stick it in a daggum light socket? That's an urban legend. That's a complete myth. You'd have to have a finger so skinny that you, well, you wouldn't even have to have a bone in it. So unless you have boneless fingers, you ain't got nothing to worry about. But here's what you can think Let's about. Let's talk about Raycons. The Raycons. That's exactly why if you wouldn't interrupt me, I would talk about these fine Raycons. Look at all of the additional features. You got three customizable sound profiles. You got the left profile, the right profile, head on. You can listen to them any of the three ways. You've got earbud tap functions. Now, what happens there? Don't tap them too hard. You can cause yourself to go death because in between the eardrum and the earlobe is the earbud. It's right about halfway in. When you stick these Raycons in and you tap the button, well, then it taps your earbud and lets all of the, the sap and the, the pus no. and the pollution out of it. That's not it, how it works, no. And it allows you to hear things more clearly. It allows you to not to worry about any of this because none of this will be happening. You'll be sitting there bopping away with your Raycon earbuds, listening to the finest music or maybe a podcast. It's not an earbud bop fun function. It's an earbud tap function. Also, noise isolation. You can isolate any one of a particular noise. Let's say you want to know what one noise is, but you can't hear it because there's too many noises. 
Well, you can isolate that particular noise. That's not how noise isolation works. Don't, isn't it? You take it a noise and you put it over somewhere by itself. Noise isolation. What's the matter? That is the most ridiculous thing you've ever said. There's an awareness mode. When you... When you press the awareness button, it'll be like the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi has come and blessed you, and you will instantly be aware of all things in the universe and the cosmic continuum. (laughs) Om. Om. No, that's not part of transcendental meditation. Well, whatever it may be. Also, custom gel tips for the perfect, most comfortable in-ear fit. Even if you've got two ears, they'll fit. And even if, like in some cases, members of the Featherbottom family, you have three or more openings that serve as ear orifices, well, you you can, the gel tips, they're kind of squishy, where they'll go right in and just force them if you have to. If you've got a particularly convoluted ear canal, you might have to force it. Take, I've found no. that if you take a flathead screwdriver and just tap the end no, of it with no, hammer, no, 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 it, no, 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 no. You have not found that. No, you have not found that, and you don't have to worry about any force. The word force shouldn't be a part of the conversation here. (laughs) Well, of course, unless you're a member of the Air Force, in which case, we're going to tell you how you can save some money here in a minute. Also, the custom gel tips, as we know, they do come in a variety of flavors, strawberry, grape, lime, pineapple. There's crystal clear call quality on the Raycons. So let's say, for example, you're listening to Mickey and Sylvia. Oh, interesting. And all of a sudden you hear, oh, lover boy, being called. It's crystal clear. I say, lover boy. How do you call you a lover boy? Love is strange. You know, she's the one who started Sugar Hill Records. Sylvia Robinson. That's right. Indeed. Whatever happened to Mickey? Fell by the wayside. Fucking douchebag. She should have brought Mickey with her. Will you leave Mickey alone? Maybe his family are big supporters of Raycon. Mickey came first before Sylvia, and then Sylvia takes off and leaves him, starts Sugar Hill Records, and makes a fortune, and where's Mickey? Well, I don't think they were Out actually there, together. Broke, busted, and disgusted, dicked by the dangle dong of destiny. They were just two musicians put together. I don't think they were like a couple or anything. Well, where's your loyalty? She had a husband. Well, where's his loyalty? And also, these Raycons are water and sweat resistant. That means if you've got these Raycons in, somebody dumps a bucket of water over your head or slings sweat on you, it bubbles up and comes off just like you've been Rain-Axed. <laughs> no, it doesn't bubble Bugs off. Again, no. eight hours with the everyday earbuds or 11 hours of playtime with the everyday speaker. That's all they almost ought to say every day and every night because you'll go from morning till night with something like that and not know the difference. You'll never know what time it is if you're listening to your Raycon wireless earbuds. And folks, right now... Don't say that. Huh? Don't say that. There's clocks. You won't care. You're going to leave the outside world behind, baby. Find your groove with the Raycon everyday (laughs) wireless earbuds. If you're ready to buy something small with a big impact, go to Buy Raycon. That's B-U-Y. R-A-Y-C-O-N dot com slash J-C-E by Raycon dot com slash J-C-E 15% off everything you get your Raycon order. That's everything you get. 
Well, it's not going to be 15% off your McDonald's lunch because you're not getting that from buyraycon.com slash JCE. But if you go to buyraycon.com slash JCE, you're going to get 15% off anything they got on sale. And if they have a cheeseburger, let me know because I'm getting hungry. Buyraycon.com slash JCE. That's right, Jim. Raycon, a great way to listen to your favorites. And perhaps some people were listening to portions of Raw this week. Perhaps some people watched portions or even all of Raw, but you watched Raw this week. Portions of it. Not, and I wonder what would it be easier to do to watch it without listening to it or listen to it without watching it? Because watching without listening. Well, but no, because then, but then no, you're talking about the commentary, but then you wouldn't be able to hear the promos and the promos are 80% of the fucking show. But when you could just imagine what they're saying, it gets even, that would be better. Yeah. We could just, you know what we ought to do? We ought to do use their video and just rewrite their promos and have impressionists. Anyway, stay tuned for next week. We could try this. All right. (laughs) So, I mean, we're getting close to WrestleMania. Most of the things that have happened or that need to happen have already happened. So I can understand that they can't all be winners, but let's just briefly run through a couple of things and one or two highlights we can get into more detail on. But Miz TV opened the show with Trish and Lita and Becky. And Becky came out dressed to wrestle, so we know that she's somehow going to be involved in the first match. And then here comes... Bailey and Kai and Sky out, and I now know I'm not interested in this because it looks like the Mets against a little league team, doesn't it? You got there are uh, plenty of reasons not to be interested in this. Well, but just (laughs) Trish and Leader are Hall of Famers. Becky was the most over person in the company a couple years ago, and is poor. There's poor Bailey and two ragamuffins. I told you it was a mistake for her to go back to being the man. She had something new and something different, and it wasn't the man, but it felt fresh, and now it doesn't feel that way anymore with her. Mm, Well, maybe she needs some Massengill, and it'll feel fresh again. But I think I'm talking about the fact that this heel team is overmatched here. Anyway, they did a promo, they went to the break, and they came back, and guess what? Becky was wrestling Sky of Kai and Sky. And they went through another break, and finally Becky won, and we were 30 minutes into the show. So, Brian, here's the thing. They don't need, nobody needs to do what you've said and do an all-women's wrestling show because they already do. The first 30 minutes was all the, the ladies, and there's more ladies to come. Anyway, packages, backstage, blah, blah. Seth Franklin Rollins beat Muhammad Ali in a match where... The fans sang Seth's whoa-whoa for half of it, and then he beat him in about a minute and a half. So Muhammad Ali has apparently got on somebody's bad. So remember when he was in everything like their Daniel Garcia? And then suddenly, anyway, more backstage blah-blah and packages and girls arguing with Adam Pierce and commercial spots, and we get to the 9 o'clock hour. Of course, there's always an official weigh-in for every WrestleMania match, right? They do the official weigh-in with Brock Lesnar and almost with his manager, MVP. And I did notice the nice what would Mama Cornette think sign was prominently featured in this particular segment. Um, 
don't you do you think it should be what should what would Mama Cornette think or what would Mama Cornette say? Well, it depends. Is there bubble gum on the boot heel? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, what would Mama Cornette? Well, either is is permissible because in that situation, she would have thought, "Boy, I wish my son was booking this." But the expression you always say is, as Mama Cornette used to say, used to say. Well, I'm trying not to browbeat this poor guy that took this sign. <laughs> You're right. I'm sorry. He, he is, his heart was in the right place, even if he flunked out of fucking grammar school. But anyway, Almost is out first with MVP, and MVP cuts a promo and puts Brock over, but said, hey, but you can't F5 or suplex or beat Almost here. And then remember what I was talking about, about the scales in an earlier segment we did, how the doctor's office scale only goes to 300 pounds and you can get a counterbalance <laughs> to go to 400. Well, he weighed in at 410 on a doctor's office scale. Interesting. But nevertheless, here comes Brock Lesnar and just... Gets in the ring and attacks almost and hits him a couple of times and he doesn't go down because he's a big man. And then Brock grabs the scale and those things are fucking heavy. And he grabbed it. And, but almost hits the big boot and Brock rolls to the floor. And that was it. And Brock looks, you know, has the look like of concern, I guess. That's the concerned look that Brock gets because he's never been concerned before, I think. But he's trying to be concerned here and almost stands in the ring. And Brock, is this doing Brock's image any good? This is, I'm not even saying he shouldn't ever sell or shouldn't go down or shouldn't put an opponent's shit over, but there's never a flat ending with Brock. He always. Either he wrecks shit most of the time, or every once in a while somebody will leave him down, but it's not just, I'm still ambulatory, but I'm going to walk off from this. You know what I mean? It's been an interesting build for this match. I mean, if you really think about it, this match would mean probably a whole lot more if we hadn't seen almost wrestle so many times over the last few years in meaningless situations. But I'm intrigued to see them in there. I don't think they needed to do too much. Brock has not been able to show any strength. I'm okay with this. And again, I think the Hurt Business is going to get back together, but we'll see. Yeah, but I'm just, uh, again, I think they should have sent the goddamn riot squad to keep Brock from getting back in the ring or something rather than, I know they're saying, well, Brock, you need to show concern finally. I'm not sure that almost is the place that Brock Lesnar needs to show concern unless, as we mentioned, he's leaving or not coming back or taking an, an extended break or whatever the case. Anyway, uh, Street Profits, Ricochet, and Brown Strongman took on Otis, Shushboy, and the Vikings in an eight-man tag. The first entrance started at 9.09 p.m., and the bell rang for the match at 9.20. 11 minutes to get them all in the ring and ring the bell. They went two minutes and went to the break. <laughs> and they came back and went three minutes, and the babyfaces won. And uh, what do you think of the bloodline, or did you even see it, or did you skip over it because you thought it was a commercial, the bloodline Goodfellas parody thing? I didn't watch it. I noticed it. I saw it there, but I'm not really into the wrestlers reenacting skits thing. 
it, well, I, I'm not either, but I, that's why I haven't watched any of the other ones, but I'm thinking, I'm seeing Haman and Roman sitting there and uh, the other Usos and Solo and they're dressed up and I'm, oh, come on, not them too. And they did. The Goodfellas said, do I sound funny to you? And they were very entertaining doing it. And they, you know, Paul could be a wonderful Joe Pesci or whatever the fuck. But it makes them, to be doing Goodfellas spoofs and doing them so well, it makes them good guys, doesn't it? Do this with your top heels that you're wanting to have heat leading into the goddamn show. And, oh, but they're they're fun-loving fellas. Eh. It's weird because other than this, it doesn't feel like there's any kind of big deal being made about, and not that there should be, about WWF or WWE doing this pay-per-view in Hollywood. Other than these, it's not some big Hollywood thing. It's just WrestleMania. I think these things were all unnecessary. I know they did it like years ago, like 2005 or whatever, but it seemed unnecessary now. I liked it back in the old days before they had a big budget when WrestleMania could go Poughkeepsie. But anyway, I digress. WrestleMania never went Poughkeepsie. It never got I'm that playing. bad. I'm playing. Uh, but hey, by the, should we tell the people? Should we tell the people? I am not able, thanks to the Spectrum cable service that I have, I'm not able to order the first night of WrestleMania here on pay-per-view in Louisville, Kentucky. It's a Roy Jones Jr. boxing event on the pay-per-view channel on Saturday night. Sunday night is open. It's up, but Saturday night, you can't order it. Standard deaf or high deaf. I can only get it in Spanish, and I don't have time to learn it. It so might be better with Spanish commentary. At least they well, sound but, like they have passion. But is it, that's how, how far the mighty have fallen, that now they don't even carry WrestleMania on pay-per-view. So I'm going to have to watch the peacock, peacock. Anyway, what was it a good sign or a bad sign that they had our boy Austin Theory do a live in-ring promo earlier in the day in an empty building? You would have to think that they thought it would be special and maybe this would help him get more out of himself. I mean, he didn't really show himself too well in the Cena thing, but I don't know if that was his role or not. But I would have to think, because whenever they've done this in the past, it's kind of always been something with impact i would think that was the intention but i don't know when, wait, 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 when have they done this in the past and when has it had impact well, i mean like again not a perfect example but vince mcmahon interviewing bruno san martino or even jimmy snooker in the empty arena oh yeah oh yeah well, that's yes we're talking a back in the old days when interviews went two minutes even if they were in the ring b you've got an interviewer talking to Either the two you mentioned were either one of the best interviews in the business or the biggest star in the business. But to be in a, a fucking NBA arena and to me, send the guy out to do it in an empty say he had a statement he wanted to make earlier today. That sounds like we don't trust this live. We want him to go out and do it where we can pre-tape it and make sure we like it. Britt Baker disease. Well, and remember I said that... <laughs> He's very well-spoken, glib, you know, he seems like he has personality, blah, 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 when he's being himself, but when he's telling these dramatic stories, he seemed, and, and or when he was in there with Cena, he seemed a little intimidated. And, but, 
the only time that I would have a guy there live and do a in-ring promo, but not have him actually do it in front of the people is if either it needed to air after something was going to happen and the people couldn't know about it, which this was not the case, or I wanted to make sure we had more than one shot at it if we needed it. And I'm, you know, so what do you think? So what do you think this was? He delivered this well, he's well-spoken, but I thought the empty arena took the oomph out of it because there was nobody reacting to him and nobody, you know, getting on him. And he, it was, there was no, there was no room full of energy for him to take over and hold. It was just very cold and very blah, blah, blah. And it wasn't even like that, you know, Terry Funk in an empty arena, but talking to Lance Russell where he's crazy anyway, it, it just, ah, if he could do it, maybe he's, they're just, they're giving him shit to say, I feel like either that, or if he's coming up with it, he's coming up with generic shit. He's not, he has a voice of his, that of his own and he has kind of a little Southern accent. I guess he's from Atlanta. One of the little modern Southern accents, but he's, he's not saying things that only Austin theory would say, and nobody else in the world would say it that way, like that, use that phrase, whatever. I, he's just reciting some shit they've given him and very, and he's very well-spoken and pronounces all the words, right? I want to hear what he fucking talks like. He recited this well, and that's unfortunately what everyone there has to do is recite stuff typically unless you get to the point where you don't have to. But like you said, you never feel like he's really feeling anything. And that's, you know, that's why it's harder now to, to, for guys to get noticed and to be different because they are given shit that other people write and expected to say it. And that was n- never the case in wrestling, which is why everybody sounded different. But anyway, uh, Cruella and Chelsea had a tag team match play uh, with Mia Yim and Candy LaRue, and I skipped that. Um, Paul did a great backstage promo. Is it, is it just a little subliminal thing? He didn't shave, or is he? I just didn't notice, didn't notice it previously, but he never shaves. He looked a little disheveled, even though he was more fired up and disturbed than usual. He was also disheveled and showing a little, a little worry, a little strain around his jowls. I mean, there are two arguments. One is Paul is lazy and decided to show up for TV that way. Or the other argument is Heyman never does anything unless it means something. So it may not have been said outright. It may be subtle, but maybe not shaving shows that he's worried about (laughs) WrestleMania. Uh... Dominic and Damian Priest did the in-ring promo. Well, Dominic mostly. He was with Damian. Where Dominic's saying it takes a real low life to beat your own kid or hit your own kid or whatever. And they did the VTR of the sister and mother angle. And Dominic, his promo in Spanish sounds better than his promo in English. Because, well, like you said, the Spanish, it has more passion to it. Uh, but then the match is Rey Mysterio and, and Damian Priest, and they started the match in the break. Come back from the break, and they're already going, and in two and a half minutes, Rey's on the top, Dominic trips him, DQ, heels get some heat, Lucha suits run out, makes safe. So again, not much to chew on there. As good as the storyline, I think, has been with Rey and Dominic, 
And I like Damian Priest a lot. You know, I'm trying to give the the Lucha suits a little bit of a chance, or at least the main guy, Santos Escobar, because now they're like using him differently. He's not wearing a suit anymore. Now he's with Ray. But it just feels like like when they ran out, I was like, why? Like it doesn't really feel like it's working or they're being you I don't know what they're trying to do, but it's just guys in the middle of this for no reason. Well, help was needed. The team was in need, and there they went. Gunther, our man Gunther against Dolph Ziggler. I'm thinking, okay, boy, this will be good. And for about a minute, it was the only thing that really looked like a pro wrestling match on the show so far, and that there was actually some struggle to things, but they went a minute to the break with Gunther treating Dolph kind of like a jobber. And when they came back from the break, I swear to God, they didn't go another minute. Immediate comeback. Gunther cut him off with a chop, suplex, power bomb, side slam, one, two, three. Poor Dolph. I mean, you know, I didn't expect him to win, but I'd like to have seen a little more of it, but nevertheless. Uh, and then Gunther cuts the promo on Seamus and Drew. And that was the entire program until we're it we're up to the main event, which had been milked all night long. Cody Rhodes against Solo, the Enforcer. What's going to happen? And again, you know, Cody has, I think, impeccable match layout skills in that he does a little bit of everything, but he's not like these other guys that have to do everything of everything. He'll roll out on the floor and give him a little action on the floor. A guy will get rattled onto the barricade or run in the steps and then back in the ring where it doesn't bury the referee and it doesn't then just take you out of it because it's just they're on the floor. And there's wrestling, but then there's fucking, you know, uh, spots. And there's, he gets cut off for the heat, but he still, even though he fights from underneath, he gets hope spots, but he doesn't come back enough that it ruins the heel's heat until it's time for the big comeback. He's just very good with keeping things moving. And the only thing I didn't like about this match, honestly, from the time they started hot, and it was back and forth, and they're to the floor, and they're back to the ring, and Cody makes a comeback on the announce desk, and then Solo catches him on a dive and rock bottoms him on the desk and does it again, and they go to the break in the middle. It's like, Jesus Christ. They'll go to the break on anything in this fucking show. They were cooking. They had them, and it ruins the momentum. Anyway, the other thing, and I like Solo, and I know he's green, but I've got to say this again. If Jacob Fatu was in Solo's spot right now, had been brought in as the enforcer, the wild man, the street tough, the street fighter, they would already be saying Roman Reigns versus Jacob Fatu should be either at Survivor Series or Royal Rumble next year. The this spot is do, is is doing wonders for Solo. Don't get me wrong, but Solo's green and he's still limited as far as flipping out. He's got a bit of a stone face and he looks kind of like he's nicely groomed. And it's a lot of punch and kick. 
but he doesn't lose control of himself to the point where you think this guy could fucking bite somebody's carotid artery out. If Jacob Fatu was in this spot, the next fucking major program for Roman Reigns would be Jacob Fatu. And I don't see that with Roman Reigns and Solo, or even Roman Reigns and Jey Uso. I know people are saying, well, Jey needs to work with Roman. Uh, he can work with him, but not major fucking program. So anyway, I was envision envisioning that as I saw it. Cody made a big comeback, hit the Cody cutter, hit the crossroads, and uh, Solo got his leg on the ropes after Cody buzzed him for a second, turn around. And then Cody misses a moonsault. Solo goes for the spike and misses. Cody hits another Cody cutter. And the Usos music plays. And I'm <laughs> now they play, they don't even, they've progressed past playing music for run-ins. And now they just play music for guys to enter and watch at ringside in the middle of a match. And so anyway, Solo hits super kick and a rock bottom for a two count. And then Sammy's music plays and out comes Sammy and Owens and they jump the Usos on the floor who have never gotten in a ring. And Cody foils the spike and hits the crossroads again, one, two, three. So nice match. And again, nothing that everything that needed to be done before WrestleMania has pretty much been done. So they couldn't reinvent the wheel here, but it was a, Except for the last couple of segments there, the, the show was pretty meh. Yeah, it was a surprisingly dull show going into WrestleMania. But wait, what you can't you can't do everything every week. Then we'd complain about that. Well, they've done too much. So this time they aired on the side of safety and did too little. Yeah, they never really do too much. That's never really the argument about <laughs> WWE. They just did too much. I couldn't focus on all the good stuff. There was too much going on. Well, Jim, let's focus on some of the other things going on in and around the world of professional wrestling. I have audio here that a lot of listeners have sent in. A lot of people have wanted to get your take on. The first batch of audio, Dave Meltzer. No! Apparently no, went no, on... No, no, wait, no, wait a minute. Now, wait a minute. Hold on here. We're going to play Dave Meltzer's audio from one of his programs. Can we get sued for this? Well, no, we're reviewing it. It's fair use. We're actually going to talk about what's said, and we're going to talk about our thoughts on what's being said. So we are in no, the No, no, no. I'm not talking about Dave suing us. I'm talking about English teachers across America suing us. Why would they sue us? For the way Dave speaks. As, as Aunt Lola used to say, is he going to go around his elbow to get to his wrist before he makes a point on this? I know I know the words he uses are English. I've heard them used individually before, but never in the order in which they come out of his mouth. I think we're safe from that lawsuit. I could be wrong. I have to check with Stephen P. New, but I believe we are safe. All right. Well, is he going to make a point? I don't know. You see, <laughs> no, because here's the thing. A lot of people got in touch with me the other day, uh, right before the drive-thru came out. Was it the drive-thru? No, this is the drive-thru. Right before the experience came out. Yeah. And they said Dave went on his show, and I heard different things from different people. Dave apologized. I heard there's a lot of hand-wringing going on. Different people have different takes on these things. I figured, let me hear it. Jace Nakarado went through. Jace Nakarado sent me notes. I couldn't make rhyme or reason out of them. And it's not Jace's fault. So we have a little bit of audio. Let's hear what this is. But this is going to be Dave and his co-host slash partner, Brian Alvarez, a business partner, 
Brian Alvarez. Now, wait, 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 wait. Now, I don't mean anything funny there. I meant business partner. I just said partner. Well, why does your mind automatically go into sexual thing? That's not where my mind is going here, but let's go to this. And then we'll come back and, and try to tell you what they actually said after you hear what they said. That's right. Let's go to this. Anything new on CM Punk today? No, nothing new today. No. Um, as far as, um, you know, it's like, this is twice that, like, I I went through freaking guilt trip because the first time, if you recall, was when he did the thing, he did quote in Sports Illustrated, and he's like, the Young Bucks called Dave Meltzer and blah, blah, blah about whatever, which was a couple weeks before the big blow up. And so I thought, you know, I, I just, oh, whatever, whatever he said. And then everything happened there. And you all know that, like, I like I thought that it's like, man, I should have just told him that the Young Bucks had nothing to do with it. Now, do I really believe anything would happen differently? Probably not. But it's like, you'd... well, let me stop. OK, well, yeah, I, I was been, we're supposed to be doing our job as reviewers and or commentators commenting on i don't i haven't yet understood what the fuck i know the subject he's talking about and i still don't know what he's trying to fucking say well one thing he did say there is looking back now he should have gone to cm punk a year ago or whatever it was <laughs> and said i just want you to know the young bucks were not my source for i guess the colt cabana story originally well yeah i guess we should have prefaced this because nobody would have been able to figure it out there's all kinds of drama been going on we talked about some of it on the last show with punk having to refute things that dave brought up out of basically the ether because his sources told him these things when it appeared that it might be getting close to punk coming back to work so they went to stir shit up, and Dave went along with it and printed it. We talked about that on the last program, where upon, at that point, Punk came back and said, no, Moxley wanted to do Rocky Three and this, and that, and the other thing. And now Dave is apparently saying he feels bad and is trying to somehow apologize for being in the midst, starting all of this shit to begin with. Is that a clear summation? And I don't even know what no. I just said. No, it's not a clear summation, but I think to even try to make it more clear or less clear, we'll see how this goes. What he's referencing here is the previous time. This time now that got Punk on Instagram to comment wasn't in print. This was on his message board. That's the ah. difference. Ah. But let's go back. Let's hear a little bit more from Dave about this. Just don't know. And it's like, I kind of feel like I was, it wasn't my job to do it, but it kind of was. You know, I'm not kind of job, but I just I just felt really bad and real guilty about like I just said, like these guys had nothing to do with this, but whatever. So then this time, you know, it's like I did a, a, a message board post that I really wish I never did because so much has happened since then, you know, in, in so many destructive ways, not, not just him. But um, let me stop there. That's interesting. That's interesting. Because so many people have jumped on Dave's behavior in the last several years, specifically on Twitter, where I don't know what you would call it, and I'm sure he may see it differently than other people perceive it, but rudeness, snarkiness, condescension, talking down to people, insulting people, you know. Well, but, but I mean, and not even, it's like not even people that are going after him 
or 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 people with a platform. It's just everybody that says something that contradicts an opinion that he has given or written, he will search them out, find them, argue it down to the goddamn nub, or if he gets on, like when he got on my bandwagon there for a while, where it was like, hey, Dave, what'd you have for lunch? Well, Cornette doesn't know. Just apropos of nothing. Yeah, whatever. And he just... This is a guy that writes tens of thousands of words a week and does these podcasts and obviously watches a lot of fucking modern wrestling. And he has the time to argue with people on Twitter that have three followers that tweet him that they don't like the fucking buckaroos or whatever. And he will beat him to death with it. It's does he ever sleep? Is that the problem? He's not sleeping. We'll talk about Helix in a little bit, but that's kind of the point too. He behaves one way on Twitter and a lot of people have pointed to it and said, it's a strategy. Dave has said that this has gotten me more, I don't know, subscribers, I guess would be the word. So obviously there is a business aspect to it, but his message board, it's a little different. That's not a big open forum. That is something that people pay to get into. There are people who subscribe to their website, him and Brian Alvarez. And the message board is a feature that they pay for. So behind that paywall, you even get a different Dave. Remember, so much of the drama that he stirred up with you started because we started getting people sending us things from his message board that he was saying in private at the same time he was emailing you all sorts <laughs> of pleasantries all the time and compliments on the show. Pleasantries. Yes, you are correct. And and then his insidious nature came to light and he wouldn't fucking leave it alone. But that again, that's this message board that he's got. This is where he writes this stuff. This is where his most devoted fans are because they have to pay to read it and to participate in it. And that's where this latest inflammatory business came uh, came up that punk then had to jump on and respond to and now dave feel i think he said he feels bad he should have never wrote it well maybe you should have asked somebody else besides whoever it is you're talking to for you did write it maybe you should think twice before anything you put on social media dave but let's go back to the audio you know somebody just going oh you know like you know one thing we can say for us like it was all smooth as far as the uh you know, the, the match that he lost to Moxley, the real quick match before he beat him for the title. And I just, you know, kind of said it's, you know, wasn't it really wasn't that smooth because it really wasn't. There was a lot going on. And, um, you know, there was a, there was drama and everything. And when I said it, you know, I mean, it wasn't writing a, a news story or anything like that. But when I said it, I never said, you know, a lot of it had to do with his injury. And it did. You know, it's like in his in his defense, he was coming back from a broken foot. Um, and it was a serious injury. Let's stop it right there. That's exactly right. You yeah. told one perspective of the story, completely leaving out his defense, as you put it, which was that he had a broken foot. He had a broken foot. <laughs> and the, the, the people that wanted to squash him were saying he didn't need to be medically cleared to participate in a squash. To which point I responded, you do if you're the one taking the fucking bumps. Yeah, and 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 now we now we find out and remember, 
As several people pointed it out on Twitter also. Remember I said in that pay-per-view match, it looked like Moxley came out with job face. And apparently, because Tony was so... Tony Khan was so out of control of his locker room that he's got Moxley, who's the interim champion, wrestling without a contract at all. He's got Punk, who's not medically cleared to come back and get the belt back, that Moxley doesn't want to put Punk over until Punk puts him over because of Rocky Three, the Rocky Three defense. And... <laughs> And, and Tony can't make Moxley do anything because he's not under contract. And it, But here in the meantime, your big fucking babyface star is coming back from injury and he can't fucking win the title back that he never lost to begin with unless he does a squash job for this delusional fucking plumber that you've got working for you under no contract that could go anywhere he wanted at any time he wanted. What the, what kind of fucking booker of the year? Jesus, H. Christ, go ahead. Well, Dave didn't put any of that in his uh, post on the message board as well, but let's go back to the audio. And, you know, that played into it, you know, as far as, you know, when he was going to be ready. And it, you know, like the the angle, whatever you think of the angle, I mean, the angle could have worked or, or, or I, 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 you know, the I mean, the way the angle was and it's like the whole Rocky three thing. It's like if you had more time, the angle probably would. have Well, it would have been better if you had more time. But because of the injury, you didn't have more time. And yeah, they could have. There's things they could have done. But the whole point. So. So in Rocky three, what was <laughs> let me get this in, in Rocky three was Clubber Lang, the interim champion. <laughs> And everybody's called, uh, drawing all these parallels to Rocky Three. No, no, it's not. No, there's not. I don't see any. The one question I have now coming out of this, there was a spectacular segment with Punk and Ace Steel. Remember that? Where Ace Steel yes. was in the ring and then Punk came out and he slapped Punk in the face? Yeah. Was that part of the Rocky Three? Storyline, because remember in Rocky Three. Well, that there, there was there was the uh, surrogate Mickey. Well, Mickey dies in Rocky Three. Clubber Lang, yeah, causes his heart attack in the back. Was Ace Steel gonna die at AEW TV? <laughs> 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 like, where where's the story? You know, apparently what's the Rocky if Moxley part? had his way, no, the whole thing at Clubber Lang is an awful monster heel. He's not a fucking babyface like Moxley was. Remember, that's why we said the whole thing's fucked up. Punk, the babyface champion, coming back to win the title that he never lost in the ring against another babyface. And then we found out that the fuck, that the babyface doesn't want to do a job for Punk unless Punk does a job for him first in a squash. Well, boy, that that's a revolutionary angle. Hey, bef before I put you over, I'm going to beat you in about two minutes flat in the middle of the ring. People won't see that coming. No, they sure didn't. And I refuse to do it any other way. Yeah, there's no similarities but it, with Rocky Three, otherwise than in the deluded mind of John Moxley, who maybe has been down under that sink sniffing the fucking liquid plumber too much. Well, it's nice to think an episode of AEW could have ended with CM Punk and Carl Weathers uh, fighting it out at the end. But let's go back to some more audio from Dave. The point is, is that like I? It's it's like a a, 
a message board post that I didn't need to make, and I didn't mention, you know, the the fact that the injury was part of it in the fact that there was drama, which there was. So it's just like, you know, there was. And so I kind of, I feel really bad about it. And then, you know, he goes and, like, I, it's, it's not like... um Oh, you know, like him saying, oh, Dave Meltzer's a liar. I mean, that's not, that's just, you know, I hear stuff like that on a daily basis. And it's, you know, I, tr I try never to do that. But, you know, it's like, whatever. It's like, I felt like, you know what? I wasn't really thinking. I didn't really tell the whole story. And, and that's the thing. And then everything happens from there. And it's so, I mean, basically, and I think he's trying, I actually think Dave's doing for Dave is good. At, he's trying as hard as he can to say he's sorry. I thought that's what you were going to say. He's trying as hard as he can to be clear. He's trying to be aware of his behavior, it sounds like. And whether well, he is or isn't. Hey, you know, if he hits that awareness mode, then maybe his whole world will change. <laughs> well, let's get away from Raycon and let's get back to DaveCon here. Any thoughts on this? I still don't know what the fuck he's saying. <laughs> This is, he speaks at colleges? Apparently, let's hear a little bit more of his speaking. So, uh, you know, and again, it's almost the same thing because it's like, you know, okay, uh, you know, I mean, it's it's funny how different people take, take what I call the shrapnel. Because I remember one time, <laughs> you know, somebody was mad at me and I go, what are you mad at? And then they said, you know, it's like, well, Brian said, blah, blah, blah. And it's like. I'm not Brian. And, and by the way, and it wasn't fair to what you said either, but whatever, that has nothing to do with it. And so then it's like, what the fuck? you know, I he kind of blasted uh, Moxley to a bit and certainly blasted Jericho. And it's like this was, you know, at the time when everyone is trying to, you know, see if you can make up and make this thing work and do the best thing for the company. And and you were used as is a tool to get the drama out there. Is everybody trying or is one side trying and the other side is, is getting using tools to get drama out? You know, the other thing, too, and, you know, we'll talk more about this because we have John Moxley audio to play, too. So I may say this a few times. This all comes back to Tony Khan. This all comes back to from the very beginning of CM Punk getting there. He has managed things wrong, even while things were going right. And you can look at the Bobby Fish match. If there was or wasn't an element that wanted CM Punk there, if you're the boss, you're the one that needs to snuff that out or needs to figure out what you're going to do. But all of the drama, I actually think, if you really think about it, Punk and the Bucks and Omega and Moxley and Jericho, they're all pawns in this fucking game. The drama's been allowed to happen because of Tony Khan and in a lot of cases, it's been spread because of Dave. And also, it, a lot of people are still not getting the, the picture of Jericho's involvement in this when, no, he wasn't in the fight, and he wasn't in the press scrum. He didn't, you know, have any part in the press scrum or whatever. But have you noticed that <laughs> any time that Punk fires back at what he perceives to be people on a slander campaign against him, people trying to get people to call him a cancer in the locker room, the people that are behind it. Jericho always gets mentioned. And you know, a lot of times when somebody is engaging in a slander campaign against you at your workplace, you might know that they are doing it, but the general public doesn't. 
So they might not understand why you would mention somebody like that, but you know who the fuck's putting the mouth on you behind your back, as Dennis Corluzzo used to say. And so I find it interesting that Jericho adopts this, oh, I'm so innocent, I'm above all that, I don't want to get involved in this, but he's always the one mentioned when somebody fires back from the other side. Because he's always involved. Let's go to hear some more yeah. audio. Then this happens, which just, you know, how that how it's going to turn out, who the hell knows, but it certainly is never a good time to do that. And Jericho had absolutely nothing to do with this message post, nor did Moxley, you know, and it's just... So let's, right now, let's circle around that real quick. This message oh, yeah, board post, he's already said the Bucks from previously had nothing to do with it. Moxley had nothing to do with it. Jericho had nothing to do with it. If we're going to assume that Punk had nothing to do with it, considering it wasn't favorable to him, then somebody not related to anything involved in this told him something, and he didn't ask anybody that was involved in it before he talked about it. Or it's Tony Khan. Let's go to more audio. Just like, whatever. Now it's like, oh, God, you know, I just I just didn't like this. I'm just really sad that it it, it happened this way. Um, you know, I want the best thing for the business, both companies. I'm happy WWE is doing great. And I'm, I was happy, shoot, I was really happy watching, uh, you know, Wednesday and seeing AEW get the good rating and the good rating pattern. This is the weirdest he was, apology. He was throbbing happy over that. Well, I mean, there's, there's a little bit more. I'm looking through the notes here. Brian Alvarez yells, don't pull me into this. He doesn't want to be involved. <laughs> but Dave, I mean, the, the recurring message over and over again is he's sorry for a message board post he shouldn't have made or he didn't have to make. He phrased it a few different ways. The question is, does Dave accept his role in stirring up all the drama over the last year and a half? I don't, I don't hear that. I hear him talking about this particular incident. I don't hear him. I don't hear him grasping the whole full concept of what the fuck's been going on because then he would be saying the same thing we are. Look how far Tony Khan has let all this shit slide down the hill. You know, that's to me still the big thing because for everyone that looks at the drama publicly being displayed or talked about now, this is not new. We've talked about it on this show going back several years now. We talked about the problems with Tony's management. We talked about drama backstage. There's a reason Cody's not there anymore, ladies and gentlemen. And until people can say, Tony is the problem, because Tony is not a boss. Tony's not a good manager, and Tony's not a good booker. He may be an okay owner and promoter, but look at what's happening with his hands all over this shit. And we'll talk about Moxley again in a little bit, but this is all because Tony doesn't know what he's doing, and he's not capable of it. He's got the money and none of the skills. But until people say that, until people want to stop pretending that Tony, well, you know, booking was better last year than it is. You know, the booking's been shit from the beginning. <laughs> it's just they were more successful when they had bigger stars main eventing a pay-per-view. But until people can actually say that all of these problems, if this was Vince McMahon's locker room, it would have been snuffed out. It wouldn't have gotten to this point. It wouldn't have gotten to the point a year ago. It all comes back to Tony Khan. Comments. Oh, I thought we were going to play some more fucking audio of uh, Uncle Dave and Cousin Droop Lip analyzing this well, let's situation. Give it, let's give it a second or two. Let's see if they add anything new. 
is a really good story you know like it's like it's it's the the match worked you kind of made a star in one night you know we talked about that was a phenomenal match so everything was kind of looking you know there's always ups and downs but that was like a real up and then now you know who the hell knows what's what's going on i don't know what's, <laughs> what, what i i am i am God, don't to, don't pull me into it i have to pull I you do into not it. i do not no you're involved in it don't say don't pull me into it brian you're involved in all this oh my god i, I think that that clip you should you should uh save of uncle uncle dave just going i don't know what's going on and i, I want to say something too and i always got along with brian alvarez I haven't talked to him in many years and beyond the issues that come at us since AEW, I never had a problem with Dave Meltzer. But they've complained, or I've heard Brian Alvarez, I think, make a comment, and other people in wrestling about the Cornette fans, whatever you want to call them, the cult of Cornette, the Cornette fans, the biggest listenership in the history of professional wrestling audio. And like any fan base, we've got some nutty fans. Most are harmless. But every now and then, there's a nutty fan who says something so, stupid. So, some people anywhere that you go in the world are, are nuttier than squirrel shit. And we get a few of them. And you know what? We don't typically embrace that. Remember, there was a guy a while back in, I think, Miami, jumped the rail at AEW. Almost got to Jericho. He said on Twitter that he did it. He was a member of the Cult of Cornette. We both denounced him and blocked him. And even Jericho came out to his credit and said Jim Cornette would have never wanted you to do that. Not a real fan of his. And then come to find out that he also, I think, claimed he did it for a few more people. He was trying to hit everybody's fan base. But where we can and where we see things, we jump in there and correct stuff. We have a Facebook group right now. It's got over 6,700 people in there right now with tens of <laughs> thousands trying to get in. I was about to say, and we're, we're trying, folks. We're trying to get those doors open. And with a small group of moderators, we do our very best to keep this thing civil, keep the conversations good, keep the laughter up, keep the information coming in, and we've done a pretty good job. Brian Alvarez and Dave Meltzer have a message board where, like you said, the most devoted of the Wrestling Observer newsletter readers go. Not every Observer reader. It's a very small group that's on there. But it exists for a reason because they know it's a selling point to get people to use that message board. People want to pay for that right. Maybe interact with Dave or Brian Alvarez. So for anyone who wants to say anything about the cult of Cornette, which is an incredibly large audience, and every now and then we get a few loose nuts and we try to do what we can to correct them. And it's not just people, you hear people like, oh, he's parroting Jim Cornette. Listen, it's the way fucking pop culture works. When Chevy Chase took off and people started stealing his line, no one said, you're parroting Chevy Chase. <laughs> it's just the way things work when things are popular. But for anyone to point their finger at the cult of Cornette, we do our best to regulate and keep people in line. That may not mean they like the wrestling you like, but we do what we can. They charge admission. We don't charge admission. What you do on Twitter and Facebook, we do what we can. They charge a fee to enter the gate for people to go there and post all sorts of shit. The other day, it was sent to me, and I went and looked, because I've been a member since it's first started. I've known Brian Alvarez from back then. He used to send me my OVW tapes, actually, funny enough. <laughs> Wait a minute. Where was he getting them from? Son of a bitch, bootlegging? Ah, oh, go ahead. Well, he was sending me my OVW tapes, which I was very happy for, because that was the M&M period. It was a great period of time there. 
But someone in one of the posts called me a bigot and a racist. You know, this is in the conversation of me not liking their wrestlers and me talking about stuff on these shows, honestly, because I don't care if I'm friends with wrestlers. I'm going to tell you the truth. Someone on that board, some nut, probably lonely, hiding behind an alias, said I'm a bigot and a racist. If that was on the Cult of Cornette Facebook group, that comment would have been taken down. That person probably would have been thrown out if that was about Dave Meltzer or Brian Alvarez, because it's ridiculous. Well, but now, well, wait a minute. These are the same people that wished us aggressive ass cancer and named the next great punk band in the process. So you mean to tell me that over there on the message board at, uh, that, that Alvarez and Meltzer are operating, that they're charging people to be a part of, that they're actually allowing people to go on there and slander other people, call them horrible names, and not even trying to moderate them in any way, shape, or form? Well, they have moderators there, but these comments are left up. And I know we know that because we've now put together a giant file of horrible things that have been said. That's the point. If you want to say, oh, Jim Cornette's awful because he hates the wrestling I like, or he doesn't like Japanese women wrestling. If you think he's horrible for that, that's fine. Everyone's entitled to be a boob. Have fun hey. with that. I'm not saying you are. I'm saying they are. Will you relax? Oh, I've, I lost you around the far turn. You are entitled to be a boob if you want, Jim. Well, I'm, I'm entitled. <laughs> And do you like boobs a lot, boobs a lot, boobs a lot? But for people to pay a fee to go on their branded message board and say stuff like that because we disagree about the wrestling. And again, Dave's been on that message board. Dave started this punk drama again on that message board. Dave was running his mouth about Jim on that message board behind a paywall, hiding. So I don't want to hear any more shit about the Jim Cornette audience. The only thing you need to know about our audience it's much bigger than yours. Yeah. But don't blame us. We don't charge them a fee. And every to once come in a while, shit. a blue vein shows up on the edge of it. But again, just to reiterate once again, don't say anything bad about this audience. It's bigger than yours. We've got less nuts than yours. What does that say? Yeah. Jim, there are a lot of people out there that are messed up, that are lonely, that are hiding on message boards. Not the ones that are wrestlers. They're just messed up and lonely, maybe. But the lonely, messed up people hiding on message boards desperate for their opinions to be heard. They think they're very important, but in reality, they may cry themselves to sleep. We know someone they could talk to maybe to get some help. Well, now you've just depressed everybody. You know, it's not even the people on the message boards that need help. It's the people operating these messages, the slumlords of the message boards. They're the evil ones in this because the, the innocent people that are that are patronizing these message boards they just want somebody to talk to and uncle dave's the wrong one as the audio we have just played shows but if you want somebody to talk to that is trained that is professional that has skills in this area then you need to give better help a try of course better help is a sponsor of this program this particular episode as it is of many of our shows and the reason why is because so many of the Cult of Cornette listeners have found some type of help, some type of solace, some type of encouragement by going to BetterHelp. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try because it's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, positively contortionistic, and suited to your schedule. You fill out a brief questionnaire, you get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists anytime you want for no additional charge. But the most important thing is, it can be someone to bounce things off of or talk to or talk about ideas 
or just get some suggestions. Positive coping skills is a phrase that they use here in the information. It will help you learn positive coping skills and be the best version of yourself. And right now, you can discover your potential with BetterHelp because all you got to do is go to BetterHelp, that's H-E-L-P, betterhelp.com slash J-C-E. Right now, you're going to get 10% off your first month's services. Betterhelp.com slash J-C-E, 10% off your first month's services. And in this manner, instead of trying to go to some off-brand message board operated by someone from Campbell-by-the-Sea, you can instead go to train professionals that can help you eliminate the roadblocks in your life. BetterHelp.com slash J-C-E. That's right. BetterHelp. But Jim, let's move on here. We have more audio. Let's, can we break up the audio with a couple questions before we play some more Let, of this ask audio? Me, I don't care what you do. As Pat Malone used to say, I'll fight you, I'll fuck you, or I'll run you a foot race. Several listeners have sent in questions about Chris Jericho's recent comments on fans singing along with music at wrestling shows. Oh boy, I heard this. Here's a quote. Now it has definitely become a thing. It's now to the point where other people's ring songs are being sung with. I'm talking about Jungle Boy, or even Seth Rollins in WWE. It's almost like Judas was the pioneer of that. Oh my God. And the fans have so much fun singing that one, uh, excuse me, fans have, have so much fun singing that one, they want to sing other ones as well. Oh. And that's great, but Judas was kind of one of the first for that. No, it wasn't. <laughs> no, it wasn't. And I, again, yes, they do sing Judas. I'm not saying they don't like to sing the Judas. But let's not get ridiculous. For one thing, who hasn't in a shopping mall, a bar, a restaurant, an elevator over the past 40 years gone, oh, 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 with Baltimore, for fuck's sake. The song's 40 years old. That's the parts people remember about it. And with the fucking Seth Rollins thing, oh, 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 I can't, I can't even do the tune because everybody's got an O now. Every NXT star for like five years came out of that. (laughs) But even before that, my God, you think that nobody was singing along to the Rock and Roll Express? Or I remember when handsome Jimmy Valiant did his fucking record in Memphis, Son of a Gypsy. The fucking people were singing that on the when they'd play it on the way to the fucking. It's not new to sing or to vocalize or mime or mimic the uh, fucking hot wrestlers entrance music it's just it's not it's been going on for for years i mean there's some you know with the instruments austin's music was incredibly over when the glass broke and everything but it wasn't like something that had a catchy tune that you could hum it or play it on the mouth harp that would have been amazing if people started bringing glass bottles to the show so they go step (laughs) on it at one time That may have been dangerous. If if ECW had a thought of it, they would have... But no, again, yes, Chris, they're singing along to your song, but they've always sung along to songs. Well, here's the other thing. Whether it's NXT or WWE or even a case like Jungle Boy, although they kind of knew what they were going to get with that song, people naturally do it. There's a difference between that 
and training your audience to do it because you're filming wrestling students and plants in the audience rocking out to your song. Well, yes, yes. For months during a pandemic. That did help quite a bit during the pandemic where they showed the uh, the people that that is the accepted behavior. You're supposed to not only sing this, but act like you're on the goddamn The Voice or something. Or the, the you know, what was the uh, the big... Uh, American Idol. Li- lip sync. No, the big lip sync show they did. Oh, like, I don't there know. was some some goddamn lip sync show they did where you'd go overboard. And yes, and all the wrestling school students that wanted five seconds of camera time would orgasm all over themselves while singing the song, and that led to it. But I would say if you want to know about lip syncing, ask Chris Jericho. I couldn't help you with that topic there. Hey, now, come on. All right, Jim. I just got I just got an email actually, and I don't have it in front of me, but this is the time to bring it up. <laughs> this guy sent an email. He must be from the United Kingdom when Fozzie went over for their European tour, leg of their world tour, because he talked to the sound guy. I guess he's a musician too, and he said, "Well, how come Jericho's mic was so far down and reverb was turned up, and he used some other kind of technical?" you know, jargon. And the, the sound tech told him that's because Jericho's a crummy singer. So they, his own band, this wasn't a local guy. This was the guy with Fozzie. Yeah. We turn him down. We crank up the reverb. We do this other thing. And that way it sounds better. But that's just what I'm hearing. That's what I've heard as well. So we will move on from there. Thank you for your comments, Chris Jericho. Jim, we got some questions here from the cult of Cornet Facebook group. This question was sent by Austin Lane Walker. What happened to Saturday morning wrestling? I guess it was a little before my time, so I never really got to experience it. When did wrestling become exclusively prime time? Oh, God, when, you know, when all this shit went to hell in the 90s. Um, And it wasn't just Saturday morning wrestling, but the way that television worked in the especially the 60s and 70s, when the territories were in their heyday, there, were, there was no cable television, and there were only a limited number of stations in each market, you know, usually three or four. Big cities had five, six. Maybe New York had seven TV stations, whatever. And time, obviously, was then at a premium. And with every station except the independents, having network commitments for prime time, uh, you know, eight to 11 o'clock Eastern Monday through Sunday. And actually started at seven on Sundays, network prime time since the sixties or whatever. And then you take out your news and you take out day parts and days that a wrestling program or a syndicated sports program or something of that kind wouldn't want, which is weekdays and overnights. It really came down to Saturdays and Sundays. That's when even network affiliates were not programmed from 9 o'clock in the morning until fucking midnight. Yes, they had, you know, Saturday morning cartoons. And if it was ABC, Wide World of Sports would be on from 2 to 3.30 on Sunday afternoon or whatever the case. But there were there were time slots available on weekends. And this was before all of the infomercials and all the bullshit. So stations needed programs that people would watch that's why wrestling and roller derby ended up on usually saturdays or sundays and except if it was a 
a big city and you couldn't get TV any other place. You wanted to be on before midnight and you wanted to be on after nine o'clock in the morning. So that's, uh, you know, that's where wrestling was in almost every TV market. Now, there were exceptions. There were Friday night shows back in the day. I mean, in the 50s, wrestling in some form or fashion was on every night of the week just because it was the infancy of television and it was easy to shoot. But So that's where weekend wrestling came about because every territory that had their one-hour program would generally find a slot somewhere in a day part on Saturday or Sunday. And Lance Russell, when he was program director at WHBQ 13 in Memphis, was actually the one that moved the wrestling program from, I think it was 3.30 on Saturday afternoon, moved it up to 11 o'clock Saturday morning to compete with cartoons. Everybody thought he was crazy, so there's only kids watching TV at that time. And he said, well, is that because the only thing on is cartoons or is the only thing on is cartoons because that's the only people watching is kids? Let's see. And it ended up the ratings, even in Memphis, went higher if that was possible. So that kind of started a Saturday morning trend that a lot of the other territories followed, but sometimes they were already on Saturday morning because that's the slot you could get. And especially an independent station in the 60s and 70s, they wanted to package a two or three hour block. They might have uh, wrestling and then roller derby and then something like Sons of Hercules that was hot in the early 70s, an Italian fucking uh, Hercules series or, you know, something that would go with that audience. And they would program those together and it would flow. When you were a kid, between wrestling and roller derby and creature features on weekday or weekend afternoons and Sons of Hercules and shit like that, you didn't ever want to leave the television. Did I answer the question? I think you did. It's just interesting when you stop and think about the fact we're getting emails from people who never had that. They never had... Saturday morning wrestling. <laughs> that really is crazy. And then, and where it went all to prime time was basically when Vince started Raw, obviously that led to the thing in the 90s, but there was prime time wrestling programs in the 80s on cable. All American wrestling was on t- Tuesday no. nights, right? No, All American Wrestling no, was All Sundays American at was noon. Sunday morning. We're Tuesday night Titans. What was that? Tuesday night. I know that, but <laughs> before it was like a television talk show, it was a rest. There was still action on it. They showed matches. Did it have another name or was it always Tuesday night? No, Titans? it was Tuesday night Titans, and then they launched primetime wrestling on Monday nights. Okay. All right. That's what it was. And, and I mean, and as we've mentioned, there were territory wrestling programs that were on in primetime on Saturday nights that would it oftentimes beat network programming. The KTVT two-hour block of wrestling in Fort Worth was on Saturday nights from 10 to midnight, and it would not only win the primetime portion of that, but would compete on a pretty decent keel with Saturday Night Live from 11.30 to midnight. No, no, it, no, wait, come to think, it would compete against all of Saturday Night Live because that was central time and Saturday Night Live was 10.30 to midnight. So an hour and a half of that two-hour television program was against Saturday Night Live and it was competitive. 
When I was a kid, I got into wrestling watching WWF Saturday and Sunday mornings in New York, 10 a.m. on Saturday and eventually it was noon on Sunday. A few years earlier, would I have discovered it? It was only on late at night at New York. It wasn't on early in the morning yeah. on weekends. That's right. The WOR time slot for years during Bruno's reign was midnight on Saturday night, right? And they still drew at the garden. And that was when I first started watching uh, Bruiser's TV show from Indianapolis because it was on at 1, 2 o'clock in the morning. It was a floating time. It aired after uh, Creature Features with Sammy Terry. And so you never knew what time it was going to come on when the fucking movie went off. That was the only way you knew. And I thought, boy, howdy, how do they have these big crowds in the Expo Center and all these big stars and the TV's on at 1 o'clock in the morning, 2 o'clock in the morning? Years later, I found out they were really on Channel 6 on Sunday afternoon, which was a stronger station in the market and a better time slot, but they had a repeat on Channel 4 late at night. And so that made more sense. But but you would find a wrestling program in all time periods of the dial on weekends. Jim, another question sent to cornydrivethrough at gmail.com from Kevin. I heard you guys discuss who would be the next feud for Cody after he wins the belt at WrestleMania. Am I crazy for thinking the reports we're hearing about Randy Orton progressing are hints that he could be the next challenger? The story writes itself, as Cody came into the WWE under Randy as a member of Legacy, and both guys are great talents, this seems like an obvious feud, assuming Randy Orton is healthy. Well, and you know, that's a period of time, as we were talking about the other day, I wasn't watching the show, so I don't know what the fuck Randy Orton and what interaction Randy Orton and Cody Rhodes had with each other, but just from the standpoint of Randy is not only of, you know, a top guy, a main event level star for so long, he's got the credibility, but also a really good heel, probably better than Babyface. And, you know, they can both work their ass off, and I would think that they would probably be able to put something really good together with each other at this point with those parameters. Cody, the, the new champion as a Babyface, Randy, the challenger as a heel, they'd be able to do some great stuff. So that I can see real quick. And they're friends. That always yes. helps. That, it, you, always, you always like hitting your friend harder than your enemy. Do you think they have to be really careful with Cody after Mania if he wins the belt? Well, careful in what? Careful that they don't do anything really stupid or, you know, drop the ball in some way or go trying to, you know, switch things around. Yes, well, I do. But it's just the chase. The chase is obviously always different than when you actually get, I mean, as his father, I mean, you could talk about his father being yeah. the best example. The chase sometimes means more than the actual reign. Yeah, but you know, Dusty, that's the thing is Dusty was the, the every man and Dusty didn't, he didn't fit the picture, not only the visual picture, but also Dusty was not the guy that could go into all of the, different territories that the NWA was still involved with when he first won the belt for a brief time and make the challenger look good. He, he could go in and he could make himself look good. And get, Dusty was a bigger star than everybody. The, the backbone 
NWA champions, Harley Race, Jack Briscoe, Dory Funk, those were big names. They were big stars, but they weren't the most charismatic, flamboyant, verbose, you know, incredibly dressed. They weren't the fucking star that shone the spotlight that bright, right? They were big names that were recognized as great wrestlers and would go in and the challenger could be the colorful one. The challenger could be the one that looked like he had the personality. The challenger would be the one that the people would get behind. And that's, you know, that wasn't going to happen with Dusty. He was, whether he, he couldn't be Dusty and not, you know, take all the attention, right? So with Flair, yes, he had the outsized personality, but he also had the fucking style and the whole, and the work ethic, the whole gimmick that, He'd put the guy over in the ring. He'd put lesser talent over in the ring. But that wasn't Dusty's. Dusty didn't need to go 30 minutes and take a bunch of bumps for people because he was a baby face, not a heel, and he didn't work that way. So it was a hold. The chase for Dusty was better than holding it because then you got to get it off of him so he can chase it again. But with Cody and today's modern, and also in the WWE environment, because they've had a heel champion for a long time. Traditionally, the babyface champion has been the long-running one, going back to fucking Bruno. So it'll be a change of pace. We've got a hero on top again, but he's, he's going to have to have a steady diet of heels that people are interested in to, you know, to have any kind of real good run with the thing. And... Orton rematches with Roman. Orton would be great. I think Gunther will be fucking tremendous if they take care of Gunther, Gunther and Cody. So there's, you know, we've seen Seth Franklin and Cody enough last year to last us for a while. But boy, they're short on top talent, baby faces and heels. So that could be an issue. You know, coming out of that, let me ask you a really tough question that someone sent in. This was sent to Corny Drive Through at gmail.com from Richard Ives in the UK. Who do you think made the biggest impact on the business, both in and outside of the ring? Dusty Rhodes or Ric Flair? Um, biggest impact. Biggest impact. Well, it just, uh, but now again, then I'm splitting hairs. Biggest impact in one particular thing or most impact cumulatively. Dusty, probably because of the places he had the book. I think Dusty, I mean, Flair, Flair was like Buddy Rogers. He inspired a lot of people to be wrestlers and to emulate him and imitate him, both a work, style, etc. But Dusty did the same kind of thing, just not, you know, he did, he got all the country music stars. He didn't get all the rappers now that Flair has, but Dusty was a booker at a high level in both Florida and Crockett at his most successful period and started a lot of guys and started a lot of concepts and match types and stipulations. And, you know, Hey, you know what? Even if you look, if you're looking at biggest impact or yeah, that was what it was. Biggest impact. How many people who came out of NXT talk about working with Dusty? Yeah. And, you know, still being at that point, at that point in time, still being in, you know, in a 
strong position to teach a lot of the guys. I mean, everybody from he started Big Bubba Rogers, who became the Big Boss Man, but Big Bubba drew record houses on in the main event against Dusty Rhodes when he'd had less than twenty matches because Dusty's booking and he he takes raw, he took raw talent and he put it in the right place and. You know, so and, and that's what Dusty always used to say to guys down in Florida when he see they better be Vince McMahon better be glad I didn't save my money. <laughs> he wouldn't have been there right then doing that. But I, I think as you know, as big as Flair's impact was as champion and all the people that have emulated him, Dusty had had more impact because he was able to manipulate other people's careers and start other guys and launch other things and whether it be the war games or whether it be big bubba or whether whatever he you know he did great for a long time with gimmicks and matches and booking for a lot of people flair got him in the door because people were inspired by flair wanted to be wrestlers but working with dusty or under dusty may have had a bigger impact yeah and honestly, what ring name did Ric Flair want when he first turned pro in the AWA after training with Vern? He wanted to be Ramblin' Ricky Rhodes. He wanted to be Dusty's little brother because Dusty was cool even then. Well, Jim, we have a long way to go. We still have things to talk about him. John Moxley audio to talk about Yo, him. Oh, boy. But, you know, it's moments like this that sometimes I think, I wish I could hang up on Jim and take a nap. You know, well, I know why that is. It's not because I'm boring in any way, shape, or form, or fashion, but it's because I know how you've got your home outfitted. And every room in the house has a Helix Sleep mattress in it. And that way, sometimes you'll just be walking across the room and you will suddenly say, you know what? I'm just going to curl up my weary bones here on this incredibly comfortable Helix Sleep mattress and just take a five-minute nap on my way across the room here. And it turns into... Well, sometimes you're down 16, 18, 24 hours. And sometimes they, you know, you're you talking about me? Of, yeah. Then this doesn't some happen. Some of the kids, yeah. I remember you've told me that Suzanne no. three times last year called 911, said, bring the shock paddles. I have not said that. That never happened. Yeah, bring the shock paddles and, and revive him because he's laid down on the Helix sleep mattress again. And that leads to no good because you just drift off. And then once you drift off into such a state of relaxation that your your blood stops pumping and your heart stops beating. That doesn't happen. You're so relaxed. No. You just kind of go into a state of natural rigor mortis on your Helix Sleep mattress. You don't want to get off of it. And many people are not able to if you spend enough time on it. Ladies and gentlemen, there are elements of the truth in what you just heard. You will certainly love your Helix Sleep mattress. You will not want to get off it. I have several in this house. I even have their all-form couch, which I love. Uh-huh. But delete everything else that Jim just said. Just focus on what? wonderful mattresses me. that you I'm will enjoy sleeping wonderful. on that will come and it's a miraculous show when they open up and then you lay on it and you get a good night's sleep like you would anywhere else, but better. Yes, and, and boy, I'll tell you what, and I was worried they were going to close back up on me. Like, they open up so nicely. I was worried when I laid down, they were going to close back up on me, but then I understand that only happens like one out of every ten times. That's the flytrap mattress. Most of the time, if you keep a box cutter on you, you can get out of the box once it closes back up. But anyway, Helix Sleep is a premium mattress brand 
that provides tailored mattresses based on your unique sleep preferences. And these tailored mattresses, they are the the most darling things. One of them comes with a vest. Another tailored mattress comes with two pair of pants. What? And one of the tailored mattresses comes decked out in a cute little tuxedo with a cummerbund. They're all finely tailored. They're dressed to the hilt. When they come to your house, people down the street far and wide will say, well, those those lasts or those people that live there, whatever your fucking name might be, in that house there, the little <laughs> Farquhar's over there, they're ritzy, classy people because they've got a finely tailored mattress walking up to their front door. Some of them even have top hats and carry canes. Hey, can I ask you a question? Yes, you can. The Fantastics came out to the ring to sharp-dressed man. Yes. Do you really think they were that sharply dressed? They were, oh, they were so sharply dressed where you could paper cut yourself on them. They were, they, they had, the, they had the, uh, the bow ties, they had the top hats, they had the white gloves. If you saw someone walking down the street dressed like that, would you say, that's a sharp looking man? <laughs> or would you no, say, I think no. that guy's blind? No, no, I, w- I would say that it appears that we need to gather up the children across the other side of the street because that's, uh, that's something you don't see every day is somebody in a white top hat, a red vinyl tuxedo jacket with tails, white glasses, and uh, spandex tights, uh, and white gloves, I should say, and glasses, and spandex tights with stripes walking down the street. But and nevertheless, strut- strutting down the street. Strutting down the street. And gyrating. But you could strut right into a nice mattress with Helix Sleep. We're back on the Helix. That's right. The tailored (laughs) mattresses. Folks, these things, they're made in America. Sometimes I think, uh, you know, they just make them in Gulfport, Mississippi and ship them out all different places. But they have That is America. That is America. That is, uh, well, just barely. A 10 or 15 year warranty, depending on the model. They've been awarded the number one mattress by GQ and Wired Magazine. So right there, you know that they know what they're talking about when it comes to mattresses. As a matter of fact, a lot of times you will see the Helix Sleep demonstrators walking down the street, going door to door with the Helix mattresses, demonstrating them. As a matter of fact, just recently I was in downtown Louisville. I saw this young lady walking down the street with a mattress strapped to her back. Looked a little bit like Penelope Pitstop. But nevertheless, they're obviously, they're out and about going door to door with these things. No, those people do not work for Helix. I don't know who you're seeing with mattresses, but you're clean. Brand new mattresses will be delivered to you in packaging by noted and recognizable delivery services. With with name tags on their shirt and labels on their truck. If a a white (gasps) panel van... With 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 white sidewall tires, but uh, out of state license plate pulls up and tries to deliver your mattress. Look in the box first. But anyway, folks, again, the Helix Sleep you can't beat it. You 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 you'll die to sleep on this mattress. As a matter of fact, people are lining up to wait to sleep on this mattress, and sometimes they they never get up. They're so what, comfortable. What are they you just talking say, they just about? Say, Leave me here. Just bury me in this thing. Find a coffin that will be big enough that you can just stick the whole mattress in, me on top of it, close the lid, just put it into me right here. I'm so comfortable. I never want to leave. It is a comfortable mattress. That part is true. Yes. It's like you're on a slab in the morgue. You'll never know the difference, folks. God damn it. So anyway, 
Right now, you go to Helix Sleep. That's H-E-L-I-X, helixsleep.com. You take the quiz, and you'll be matched with the model mattress that you want, whether it's soft, medium, or firm, or how you sleep on your side, back, or stomach, or standing on your head. If you're moving around all night, you get the jimmy legs. You tell them about these things. They pick one out for you. They tell you this is what you need, and they'll send it to you. It comes with a warranty. If you don't like it, you can send it back. How about that for confidence? And right now, Helix is offering up to 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows. For our listeners, if you go to helixsleep.com slash JCE, up to 20% off all the mattress orders and two free pillows, it's their best offer yet. It's not going to last long, just like you You won't last long on a Helix Sleep mattress. You'll fall right to sleep. Nobody lasts more than 30 seconds on a Helix Sleep mattress. Just ask anybody's wife that's bought one, and they will tell you. That's not, this is not true, but it's a comfortable mattress. That part is true. You'll, you'll, you'll go right out. Some, and some, some models of the mattress are fitted with chloroform. No, they're not. Why? Why? We're so close to the end. Why did you have to end that? Hey, the kids uh, mattress for children 12 years of age has been awarded best mattress winner by Parents Magazine. Did you know that? That is true. That is true. Yes, it is true. And they're cute little things. They're only sometimes if you've got an overgrown kid, if the kids have got that just giant ape-like growth spurt going on, you might have to fold him over double to get him on the kid's mattress. But it'll be cheaper. You'll save money. So just fold him up and tape his wrist to his ankles. He'll be fine overnight. Helixsleep.com. A fine mattress. Check it out today. Well, Jim, to wake up from this Helix nap here. Let's talk about another big story going around. We talked about Dave Meltzer's apology of sorts on his show. Ever since CM Punk went on Instagram to respond to Dave Meltzer, everyone's been talking about this story, the AEW drama, the self-induced AEW drama. And now John Moxley has weighed in on things on his wife's podcast. Well, because Moxley also was somewhat taken a task for his rewriting of the Rocky three uh, script when he insisted that he be allowed to squash the guy he was being asked to put over first. So yeah, I'd be interested in hearing what he has to say. All right. Give me a second. We're going to pull this up to review it. Jace Nakarado sent me some notes. Now this is, is this a confrontational type of interview? Does she really ask the hard questions, get to the meat of the matter, the root of the situation? I could be wrong, but I believe they're in the same room or at least the same house while they're recording this show, I would imagine. But let's. But uh, certainly she's not going to let the fact that she's married to the guy bias her. You know, she is the Barbara Walters of wrestling. No, she what? Renee, Renee Moxley Good. So certainly she's going to go into this like a journalist and ask the hard questions and put this guy's feet to the fire. Well, let's hear it now. Let's start. Here's John Moxley talking to his wife. Guys, another John session here. I just want to put it out there that we actually planned on recording this last week. And honestly, I kind of wish that we had have just recorded this last week before some drama Rama started to unfold, because now I feel like the spotlight is on you to respond to all of this. 
Don't ever compare her to Barbara Walters ever. <laughs> Do me a I'm favor. I'm sorry, Diane Sawyer. Okay. Oh, give me a break. Drama, and I know that you don't really give a shit yeah, hey, to didn't, respond. Didn't, didn't Barbara Walters always use the phrase drama-rama? Good band from New Jersey, actually, originally. But uh, Rodney Bingenheimer made them famous. Let's go back to this. To any of this drama, but of course, I would be remiss to not ask you about it, <laughs> I guess. Is there anything that you would like to address with all the stuff that has kind of unfolded in the last couple of days on the internet, Oof. in the wrestling world? This audio's rough. No. Because nothing has unfolded. It's Wait a minute. Fucking... Is, he, is he on a taxi cab microphone? <laughs> uh, is, or is he... Is he... <laughs> It sounds like when they call in the dispatcher on 46. Go ahead, 46. No, uh, I, yeah, Main Street and some, uh, Lincoln Avenue. Somebody said some stupid shit on social media. Like, that's not news, but it is, and it ends up being a thing. I, I don't want to get dragged into this. Let me stop. The audio is awful. Aren't they in the same house? One would imagine, unless that maybe one of them's contagious, so they're in a cone of silence or a plastic bubble or whatever but go ahead let's yeah. see if he can put together words better than uncle dave let me just say this i'm over here in last manor jim Cornette's in louisville kentucky and this is how much work we put into our audio whenever someone puts out a show with shit audio like that it tells you what they think of the audience it tells you what the host and the producer thinks of the audience let's go back it just this. bugs the living shit out of you sound quality is you you even take me to task for slurping my sprite just put some effort in but here we go dumb shit yeah i could fucking unload on a lot of fucking people right now. And when I start getting dragged into this shit, it tempts me to do that, but I'm not going to fucking sink to that level. Well, let me stop it there. He won't sink John Moxley and say a bunch of stuff, and he doesn't want to be involved in the drama. Any thoughts? He would have to climb reaction? a stepladder to tickle a rattlesnake's belly. Okay, let's go to the next one. But I will say this. I'm just going to give you like a tidbit of information from my point of view, the entire summer, I was not under contract. No contract. Free agent. I was at SummerSlam weekend wrestling fucking Desperado and shit. The day of SummerSlam, fucking suplexed him on a bunch of aluminum cans and shit, cut in half. It was fucking dope. I could have walked into <laughs> SummerSlam that night with the AEW fucking belt if I had been so inclined. Nobody knew that because I don't put my shit out there in the world and let everybody know every fucking thing about my business, you know? I was not under contract. Reason being, if you're curious, because I got a rehab and my contract was coming up, they extended it for the time that I missed. Cool. I'm glad they did, actually, because I didn't want to feel like I owed them anything, you know? So. I get it now. I totally get it now why this guy has gotten millions of dollars and the ability to do whatever he wants and got his wife a job and Soraya a job. I get it now. I would give this guy any amount of money to get out of my office, too. You, I think you found the answer. Get out of my office, whatever you want. Just stop talking to me. Just don't speak to me anymore and you can have anything. They extended it a little bit. It was coming up. They're talking to me about it. And the last thing I wanted to do when I first got out of rehab, because all they were telling me is like, basically, logic would tell you don't go back to wrestling because you're just going to fall into the same old habits, right? So I wanted to just like ease back into it and see what life was like on the other side. And the last thing I wanted to do was just hurry up and sign a big long-term commitment. Because what if, I don't know, what if shit started going off the rails? And yeah, like, I don't know. Like, yeah. 
again, you know, this is less about Moxley than Tony Khan in my eyes. Well, because again, Tony Khan, his world champion, CM Punk, huge baby face, gets hurt. He has to name, in his own mind, has to name an interim champion because that's what Tony Khan does. So instead of putting it on a heel that Punk can then vanquish when he returns, because this was before All Out, before Media Scrum, before everything, the plans where he'd come back and reunite the belts, he puts it on not only a baby face that then will split the reaction when Punk comes back to reclaim what is his as a baby face rightfully should, but also he puts it on a guy that's not only not working under a contract, but just got out of rehab. Oh, here's a good, I'll just, I've lost the use of my one world champion to injury. So I will give it to another one that is in no way obligated to work for me. And he just took off a significant amount of time to go to rehab and is not sure he wants to come back to wrestling full time. That was a great decision in hindsight. Now that we know all these things. Quickly, I was like, man, actually being sober is awesome. This is fantastic. I'm having so much fun. I was working with my friends, Blackpool Combat Club, me and Brian and shit. I was like fucking regal. Like, this is great. You know, and they're talking to me about signing a new thing. And I was like, if everything just stays exactly as it is right now, I'll be here forever. You can pay me in cash in an envelope at the end of the night. I don't give a fuck. But I can't tell you what I'm going to feel like in six months, especially not in three years or five years. And once I make a commitment, then I will push through injuries and I will push myself too hard and I will do all these things that add up and it leads you down the road or whatever. You know what I mean? I mean, he's really more just defending his stance in not signing a contract while they put the world title on him, I think, right? Yeah. Well, I think he's also giving us more clarity into why Nick Gage is his hero. <laughs> well, let's go to hey, this. You're fucking, you're fucking right. You're fucking right. This guy. I'm not talking about any substances or CTE or anything. We're just dealing with a guy that's apparently not ever been really very fucking intelligent. Well, here's him starting to talk about CM Punk. And so sure. I was not in a hurry to make any kind of grand commitments, you know, at first. That being said, during this time period, the night in uh, fucking... What's his dick's talking about? It was in Indianapolis. Not Indianapolis, Minneapolis. It was the night he what came back. What are those Appalaces? So CM Punk's what's his dicks? What's his dicks? That's a new expression for me, but let's go to this. And uh, was hopping around on one foot, bumping around inner circle or whatever after me and Jericho wrestled. In a badass match, by the way. Yeah. So we're, we're talking later about stuff. Now, keep in mind, at this time, this is my whole point. I basically don't work there for all intents and purposes. I don't even work here. Tony is not my boss. I don't even have to be in this room. I don't have to do shit. So even me being in this room and offering and agreeing to a storyline that puts you over at the pay-per-view, <laughs> if anything, I'm bending over backwards. For Tony and for this dude and for the company and everybody. Because I didn't have to. I didn't have to do shit. If anything, 
I was bending over backwards. So oh, hold on one second here. So basically, Tony Khan has given this fucking unemployed balding fucking plumber a goddamn job for millions of dollars a year at that point. And it's what's best for the business. For Moxley to drop the belt to Punk at the pay-per-view because Punk has drawn viewers and ratings and gates that Moxley has had plenty of chances to and has come up short. But Moxley, because the boss is a complete moron, is not under any kind of contract or obligation to give the goddamn belt back unless he then says, well, I need to beat you first, even though Moxley beating Punk at that point made absolutely no fucking sense whatsoever. But because this guy's a mark for himself, thinks he's a badass, thinks he's a big star, and apparently thinks that he has these great fucking matches that nobody else is seeing. Rocky three. Rocky three, baby. I am the tiger. Yeah, I'll I'll squash Punk on TV that 900,000 people will see. And then he can beat me in a real match on the pay-per-view that 150,000 people will see. That'll make it even. Yeah, fuck you, you fucking drooling simpleton. Go ahead. See, I think he comes across incredibly unlikable here and unprofessional, and I would certainly never want to have this guy working for my company, but I don't blame him for any of this. This is Tony Khan who put set the yeah. situation in motion. He put a fucking idiot in, in that position, and then he had to fucking get that idiot out of that position, and however the idiot would agree to it. That's it. Okay, so here's my, here. I've got a couple. Like, uh, you know, that's not even controversial. I'm just telling you. No, those are just facts. Those you are know, cut and dry keep facts. Fucking mind. Okay, so my question's to you then, just like based off of that, and this doesn't even have anything to do with that situation. That can be the only piece that you say in the situation. Um, is this Moon this Zappa? This is not Moon Unit Zappa. No, I'm sorry. I thought it was Norge Weasel. In sort of a situation for you in terms of like any time there's been a little bit of a, oh, oh, something's happening. Oh, we got to do something. A lot of things have fallen on your shoulders. And I think I think it's pretty fair to say you as one of the the cornerstones of AEW, your run as champion. And I mean, even if you want to go back to the, the pandemic days, but I think specifically you being able to step in if somebody's injured, if someone's in a situation that you have been. Well, now you know who's pumping him up with all this shit. Whoa, boy, there you go. And apparently she's behind it. Guy, what kind of pressure comes with being that guy in situations when you haven't necessarily, it's not been planned out, but you step up in those uh, occasions? I mean, that's what a big part of my career has been. You got to be ready to seize opportunities when they rise. I think last time we did this was right before Forbidden Door, when I got slotted into Russell Tanahashi, which turned out amazing. Right. You know? So that yeah. was just an opportunity. Everything he does is the same thing. It's just like, I'm going to say that. And then I did this, which was awesome. It was amazing. Which was great. It was dope. No, it really wasn't, man. Really fucking wasn't dope. It all. ruled ass. Opportunity. Got to be ready for that stuff. So for young wrestlers listening, you know, you got to. You never know what's around the corner. Get your advice from this guy. That's what you're also should do. It really is crazy to think of like your career and things like that happening. It's not just now. It's and like I've never I don't I've never been like it's never been like the plan to 
build everything around me. Right. You know, the only time when it was kind of like that, uh, the pandemic happened and the whole world shut down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. You know, that's the only, the only time. Oof. The big part apparently is coming right up because I don't know how much longer I can listen to these two. Yeah, I was about to please get to some This point. is rough. Uh, okay, apparently uh, Jason notified me that this is the big quote, as he put it. Let's go to this. Big quote. It'll be coming up in 17 seconds. Let's go to this. Time that ever happened. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, you know, that's... Does it get, like, annoying sometimes to be like, you know, if you'd have just fucking gone with me in the first place, like, we wouldn't be fucking going through this again. Right. <laughs> Whoa, they, I didn't even realize that was in there. That's an interesting line. If you'd have just made me the champion in the first place. Oh, good Lord. Maybe they'd be in a, a worse position than they are right now. It does, but instead of the bloodline, we'd have the mud line. But also, like, no, nah, it's all good. Like, I don't complain. I see the good in everything, and I'm just so having so much fucking fun. Mm-hmm. And like life is so fucking good right now that I don't want any negative bullshit. Right. Like, How what's the fucking complain about? You know, like, ugh. and I guess you can kind of like unload on that a little bit of just I mean, like I mean, the frustrations just, of not even this situation, I mean, I will, but I will say this. And uh, I hate to say, I don't think I've ever said anything even remotely negative about AEW, but I will say this as an observer seems like you know i spent eight years on the indies been a couple years in wwe developmental spent like eight years in wwe i have never seen so much bullshit drama in one place in my entire fucking life i hate to say that that's right about that like and i don't know if it's because of the age of social media shit gets like it's because of tony khan it's because of Tony Khan. That's the and only the P- reason. And the people that he assembles in the same place that don't match each other or belong there. It's all over the page. Yeah. All the same people were on the Indies. And he, can, he can't corral them. All those people were on the Indies and working for WWE and ind- developmental. All the same people are usually around. Tony Khan is the intangible here. Tony Khan <laughs> is the reason for all this drama. And then they all start beating the shit out of each other once Tony shows up and starts paying them more money than they've ever seen before blown out of proportion right. like one person types one stupid fucking drunk tweet and all of a sudden it's all anybody wants to talk about mm-hmm. you know like but also it's like maybe just like a generational thing as well like not only the social media aspect but like people are coming into the business a different way um people seem to be able to behave a certain people just can go into business for themselves whether they're going on social media and i can't anyway. i can't i can't okay yeah can't. there you go hey hey hold on And now we've come to the part of the interview we were waiting for, the end of it. Well, hold on. Thank you know you what? Much. Let me, there's one more here according oh, to boy. the notes that may be interesting. Hopefully it'll be less Renee. Let's go to this. Barbara Walters. A pay-per-view. You know, we're not talking about anything. We're talking about some bullshit. Like, let me be clear. The vast majority of people there don't cause any fucking trouble. Sure. Any bullshit. Sure. Know? But they're getting sucked down into the shit. Yeah, yeah. Like everybody else. Yeah. Into the muck. Can I stop you real quick? If the idea is the vast majority of the people here aren't involved in the drama, and I would say, considering how many people work there, that's probably true. Yeah, it would almost have to be, statistically. And if Punk hasn't been anywhere near one of your buildings since last September, was it? Yeah. So what's causing all the drama? (laughs) What's causing all this? You can't blame Punk if he's not even there. What's causing all the drama if it's not CM Punk? 
It's Tony Khan. Yeah. You know, there's plenty of people who just want to get better and perform and fucking just do this job, man. It's the best job in the world. Yeah. And there's a lot of that. And I've taken, uh, like, I'm not an official coach. I definitely don't ever want to be a producer, so to speak. No, I mean, I know it's a pain in the ass. Please, no. Please, no. I'm going to stop it here. He apparently talks about how he uh, likes being a coach and likes helping people. And uh, apparently one of the big students he's been... (laughs) I'm reading it as I'm I'm, I'm saying it as I read it. One of the students he loves getting the best out of is Marina Shafir. Oh! Does he know her? He works with her, apparently, on her wrestling... And, but uh, he don't know her. Well, there it is. John Mox. And again, I think he comes across horribly. And I've always said it. CM Punk comes out the cult of personality. John Moxley has the biggest cult of personality in pro wrestling. People just get off on this persona he's crafted that they're willing to overlook everything else. Everything this guy's saying in- here. Including every bit of visual of... Uh, evidence they have that his persona that he's crafted is bullshit because look at him and besides that again you've got a guy that's wanting to mentor young minds his hero is the fucking bank addicted drug robber who he thinks is great and should be on national television this is the last guy that should be anywhere near a young wrestler because he's a mental case and he's delusional and he would spread this shit everywhere like the fucking plague Garbage wrestling. That's his mindset. And if you don't think that she's Barbara Walters, you don't think she's Diane Sawyer, how about Rita Cosby? Okay. See? I found one. There you go. That works for me. Deborah Norville, maybe. I don't know. But to go back to this whole thing, and again, I think Moxley comes across really bad here. Just like, I could have done whatever I wanted, but I was just nice enough by the grace of me to do this. And I'm not sure this is the only time this has happened. I know he says he hates drama. Is this the only time Moxley's ever pulled this? Right then and there? That's the question I still want answered. But beyond Moxley, the fact that Tony Khan, when CM Punk got hurt, he thought the decision was to put the belt, like you said, on a babyface, on Moxley. Moxley's not under contract. Could have shown up at SummerSlam. Moves out of his mouth right there. I could have shown up at SummerSlam. Of course, he would have had to have a ticket or they wouldn't let him in, but still, he could have showed up there. Further screwing up the relationship with Punk and the company, we now find out, or at least it's in his head as everything else is happening here, all this other drama coming out of the Bucks camp with the Adam Page promo and everything else. So all that's going on. So, so and from Punk's standpoint, he's got there, he has to put up with the Whisper campaign from the Cucamonga Kids. Then he's got to put up with this fucking clown coming and say, well, I'll just squash you first on TV and then you can beat me. And having to fucking go along with it because elsewise the guy can just walk with, you know, the belt. It's not like they were going to put their fucking AEW belt on WWE television. They've been down that road. That doesn't work. But Moxley doesn't read a lot and thinks they could. And then Punk's got to put up with this other fucking bullshit. As soon as he gets past Moxley, he's got to put up with the fucking the, the, the page double cross on live TV and the fucking continuing thing with Cabana and all that other shit. You know what else is interesting? Now hearing more about this story and Moxley being so closely associated in character and out of character with Steven Regal. This is right around the time Regal was like, you know what? I need to be with my son. I need to get out of here. <laughs> I need to and get go the home fuck out of here. 
all this backstage Tony Khan induced drama because he's not prepared to be in the role that he's in as the booker and manager of talent for that company. And all these things are starting to fill in now. And can anybody blame Punk at this point for being frustrated? When again, whisper campaign about Cabana and the fucking Cucamonga kids, and he's got to deal with Paige, double-crossing him on live television. He's got to deal with this fucking guy and his fucking demands while he's injured and trying to come back and blah, blah, blah. What the fuck? And no Tony wonder he was him. cranky. And to remember, Punk said in that comment, I turned to Tony and said, is this what you want? And Tony said, yes. And then after all that, Tony gave Moxie a new multi-million dollar contract and hired his wife. Yes. <laughs> That's the thing I'd do to guys say, you know, I don't even really need to be here in this fucking room and we're going to do things my way or I'll show up at SummerSlam. Oh, well, here, let me sign you to years more for millions of dollars and, and your wife can come along. The fuck? Again, I know there's people dead set on Punk looking like the only bad guy in this situation, and I'm not saying I completely excuse Punk's behavior. However, come on. At this point, when he says he was working with children, it's becoming more and more apparent. It's like there's a new child introduced into the story every week now. Because all of a sudden, Moxley's part of the problem. How would you have dealt with that if you were Tony Khan? If you were, no. If you were a businessman and... You have an interim world champion for whatever reason that's saying he's only going to do what he wants against your biggest star in the company, and he's also not under contract. What do you do? I think you got to say, well, for one thing, he couldn't take the belt to SummerSlam. We've covered that. That's, WWE wouldn't have gone for it. Especially if it didn't work to show a NWA belt, they ain't going to fucking try with AEW. Um... I would tell him, okay, you know, that's great. Then we will come up with some reason to explain your absence from this company for the rest of your life. Now, I wouldn't have been in the position where he was a baby face and where he was without a contract and still has my singles title and has just come out of rehab and his commitment to the wrestling business is tenuous. None of those things would have happened if it had been me, but if I'd have found myself in a position where this guy just said, you know what, I got this belt, and I'm not going to drop it to your big star that you want to wear it unless I can beat him first, then I was, in, in that case, I guess we got to say that you got run over by a car in a parking lot, motherfucker. We're going to figure something else out. But you're not beating this fucking guy. It also sounds like Moxley's not going to be happy unless he's doing just what he wants. Well, of course not, because he apparently thinks that this shit is good and he knows better than anybody else what he should be dead. It's good for him. Don't sell anything. Beat everybody. It's not believable. It's not good for anybody else, but it's good for him, so I'm sure he likes it. But that's where somebody else needs to be in charge and say, well, no, not all the time. Well, that's right. But Jim, let's get one more question here before we uh, have our big AEW review and maybe some guests the program a little bit later on. But to stay on that topic of the wacky world of AEW, too many people sent us a video clip this past week of Chris Jericho and the Jericho Appreciation Society working a match. I think it may have been Pro Wrestling Gorilla, but I'm not sure. Someone said that. Oh, it, it was. It was at the... 
the fantasy wrestling promotion that a bunch of the indie outlaw guys got together and put on and, and started for themselves so they could bring all their friends in and they could have ridiculous matches where everybody's allowed to do everything you could possibly think of in front of 400 people and it goes on endlessly and uncle dave's a big supporter because it's mark wrestling and that is pro wrestling gorilla Nothing to do with the Simeon family, the chimpanzees, the orangutans, the apes, things like that. It's gorilla as in guerrilla warfare. And that is what apparently now... Jericho obviously did it as a favor. They don't have enough room in their building to draw enough people to sell enough tickets to pay his normal fee. But apparently he wanted to impress the kids. And he and the Jericho appreciators showed up at PWG and they did the thing that everybody was talking about, circulating the clip in their little match in this little barn where you would think if normally in the old days, if some big star would come into a small time show, all the guys would gather around him and ask his advice and ask him to watch their matches and critique them and give them any advice or whatever just be thrilled the guy was there and the guy would conduct himself like a professional and fucking be somebody that they could look up to or you got chris who's going through the midlife crisis and i guess he just can't drink himself into being 35 anymore and so he's got to play with the kids and do their and play their games so brian tell the people what chris jericho former WWE champion, at one time one of the biggest name wrestlers in the industry, guess what Chris Jericho was doing in front of 400 people at a PWG show in a barn in fucking Rosita, California the other day? It appeared that Chris Jericho, trying to impress someone, was participating in a match that was taking place in slow motion. In slow motion. Remember, I told you a couple weeks ago on a program, I was talking to Ricky Morton a couple years ago at one of the fan fests before the pandemic, and he said, Jimmy, you're never going to guess what these guys did. He said he had like a six-man tag or something. He didn't know these guys he was partners with. They said, watch what we're going to do. And he said they got in the ring and started doing spots in slow motion. And I said, no. He said, yes, they did. And what what can he do? He's he's there. He's standing there in the middle of it, right? He had to just be there, get some on him. Couldn't stay away from it. But this was a, like all five of them. Apparently, it's, they had a 10-man tag or whatever, and they just decide, because I understand from some people on Twitter who think, well, all the people there were entertained. Yes, all the fucking family and friends of all these outlaw dipshit wrestlers that can't fucking work were there and they were fucking entertained. If they were entertained by goddamn cornholing fucking unicorns in the ass, then the poor unicorns would already be extinct even sooner. People were entertained by Joey Ryan. Remember, that was the defense for so many years. Yeah, People that, were entertained and that, by and that worked out well, too. But anyway, the basically, there's 10 people in the ring, and they're all going in slow motion. And these people who claim to be wrestling fans, which they aren't, or elsewise they'd be as offended as we are, uh, but these people who claim to like wrestling, oh, this is great. That's a thing they do in PWG. They have slow motion wrestling. Well... 
Here, here's my slow motion finger. I wish you could see it if we had video. How about this? Here's my slow motion. <laughs> Fuck you. Actually, <laughs> Fuck you. Can you name two wrestlers who were part of the group that started Pro Wrestling Gorilla? Uh, well, one of them was Dick Boy, right? Joey, Joey Ryan. Ryan. That's right. Um, and there's uh, numerous others nobody's ever really heard of. There's one, one of them. Uh, Excalibur was in that group. That's right? right. Excalibur, Joey Ryan, the Disco Machine, Super Dragon, Scott <laughs> Lost, and Top Gun Talwar. Top Gun Talawar? Talawar. T-A-L-W-A-R. Well, there you go. That's the crew that started Pro yeah, Wrestling Gorilla. That's, that's Uncle Dave's favorite wrestling promotion. Jim, perhaps someone who is not Uncle Dave or anyone else who sees something like this is greatly offended. It isn't entertaining. It's lame. And Jericho didn't even do it well. Maybe you want to find a way. There has to be a way to sue. Well, no, because if you go to one of those pro wrestling chimpanzee shows, then you pretty much, you, you, you get what you pay for, right? That's right. Especially if you, if you press the button there too quick. You get what you pay for if you go to one of those shows, and that's pretty much nothing. But sometimes in life, you get things that you don't pay for, that you don't deserve, that you didn't order, you didn't request, you didn't ask for to be a part of your life. And that's when you need to call someone to stand up for your rights, privileges, and freedoms in a court of law. Now hit that button. Call Stephen P. And I'm not even talking about rotten wrestling. There's some things going on over there in West Virginia. We've mentioned this before, but there was a recent article in the, on TheGuardian.com, as a matter of fact. The Guardian, who covers news worldwide, but this was specifically news from West Virginia. 14 inmates in the last year have died in West Virginia jails amidst reports of deplorable conditions, rampant violence, and inadequate medical services, and a federal investigation has been demanded and called for on the part of some of the families of the victims of these murders and deaths and killings in these jails. There was one woman that was arrested for shoplifting and was killed by other inmates looking for drugs that they thought were secreted in her body. In the past decade, over 100 inmates have died in West Virginia regional jails. Another autopsy that a family forced from one inmate, the findings were consistent with being beaten while you were handcuffed, wrists broken, arm broken, nose broken, leg bone broken. And you guessed it, you are absolutely right. One of the people representing these inmates in a class action suit is our friend Stephen P. New at newlawoffice.com, 888-692-8084. Here's a quote 
from Stephen P. New, a 1950s or 1960s Russian gulag could not have been worse than 2023 West Virginia. Prisoners killing each other and themselves, guards telling female gangs to beat up female prisoners. He calls it dystopian. And I'll have you know that Stephen P. New is the only person in West Virginia that knows how to use the word dystopian properly. Oh, stop it. Come on. Oh, I just kid. It's, it's all in the, in the heart of entertainment here. But anyway, basically, so they're killing shoplifters over here, and the guards and the police are beating up the inmates while they're contained. The whole place is overcrowded. There are, I believe, hold on, it gives the statistics down here. There are 711 prisoners in one of these jails that's meant for about 400. They can't get enough correctional officers. Apparently, they got too many of the wrong kind. And uh, toilets broken, infested with bugs and maggots. And that's just in the local public library. So anyway, Stephen P. New is straightening stuff out like this, just like he's straightened stuff out with these big energy companies. He's straightened stuff out with these big pharmaceutical companies. But big or small, Stephen P. New will straighten it all. So if you need legal help, guidance, opinion, or representation, newlawoffice.com, 888-692-8084, and don't go to jail in West Virginia. I hear Indiana is much more hospitable. That's right, Stephen P. New, and what you hear there, the sound of light, we are traveling to the future. (laughs) We are here, another time travel special, and we're about to talk about AEW Dynamite. Did that make sense? Dynamite! What? uh, You're parroting J.J. Walker. Stop it. Parroting or parodying? Parroting. Or perhaps imitating? Oh. Or even possibly uh, homaging? But nevertheless, what is the speed of light, Brian Last? Do you remember? I think that was it. 186,000 miles per second, I'll have you know. And that's what I wish I had a fast-forward feature for whenever we have to watch Dynamite. We, we've gone away. Did you miss us? We've come back after watching Dynamite. We're going to get all this other miscellaneous falderall and shenanigans out of the way from the week in wrestling on this program, and then the the... Onslaught begins on the experience this weekend of SmackDown and WrestleMania 1 and WrestleMania 2 and who knows what's going to happen on the Hall of Fame and a blah, 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 and we go from there. So, Dynamite for March 29th. Remember all the times that I've said, you know, that Jungle Boy, when he's in there against one of his flippy friends, it's just, it's a mess, but when he's in there with a veteran that knows how to lead a match... The fucking kid's great, right? They broke that string. And I I think it's because Matt was trying to have the young fellers match or uh, whatever semblance he could or do the stuff the young folks do rather than teach this kid how to... It was... The things that happened made no sense to me. Uh, they started out wrestling. 
And then all of a sudden, Jungle Boy goes for a dive. Matt catches him and gives him that side slam on the floor that looked like it should have broken him in half. Did you see that, by the way? I did. What impact? Boom! Shagalaka. And then, when Matt gets back in the ring and draws the referee's attention, the other page who is there at ringside with him grabs Jungle Boy and chucks him over the barricade out into the crowd. And then Aubrey Ed turns around, and what is she expected to think? Jungle Boy, who just got sidewalk slammed on the floor, is suddenly out in the fucking third row. But it didn't matter anyway. The interference, because moments within 10 seconds, Jungle Boy was back firing back and diving off the barricade on offense at 100% after the interference and the big move on the floor. And then they had a, a fight on the apron that I swear to God, once again, old Aubrey Ed was standing there just staring at him, slack-jawed, while not counting while they're just going back and forth on the apron and nobody's falling off or whatever. And then finally, Matt drops Jungle Boy on the, the apron and breaks him in half again, and they go to the break. And when they came back from the break, out of, after all that, Jungle Boy's making a comeback. But then the other page distracts him again, and Matt Hardy hits a superplex. And the other page jumps up again because they're trying to tell the story that Page is interfering or at least trying to help, and Matt Hardy doesn't want him to help. But it doesn't matter because right as the other page is getting up and yelling at the referee for actually no apparent reason, hook music. And he comes out and he and the other page start doing duck spots on the floor and page nails Matt by mistake. And then page and hook fight off right on off. And the Jungle Boy and Matt go back to the match, and Jungle Boy hits a backslide and gets a two count. They're still going to, after all this, they're still going. Jungle Boy, instead of it, it, just beating him with the backslide then, because how much more all do you have to go? Then he kicks him, hits a big move, and hits a shitty-looking elbow to the back of the head, and then pins him. He could have won with the backslide while everybody was halfway up and instead he just then hammered him four more times and beat him what'd you think i wasn't really into it i mean it was matt hardy and ethan page against jungle boy a new jungle boy was gonna win i haven't really been into a matt hardy match in a long time you know you said jungle boy when he's in there with a veteran matt hardy's not that kind of veteran he's the kind of veteran who wants to you know party with the kids as opposed to, to say hey maybe you shouldn't do that it's just the way it is uh, but anyway then suddenly mjf's music plays and here comes mjf to face face off with jungle boy in the center of the ring and again mjf does an incredible promo on jungle boy mentioning his ex-partners marco stunted growth and dino douche um told you well i said i did, did I, I i i said dino douche you said you dino said douche. dino and i said dino 
The MGF said Dino, so it's a it's a so New I York win. thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's a New York thing. You you guys talk funny. But anyway, so we don't need to praise MJF's promo that much more. He cuts an incredible promo on Jungle Boy and how that, you know, he he built him up. He got respect for him when they wrestled, but you know, he had told him this advice forget your clown friends and be out for yourself and you'll be fine. And Jungle Boy then starts the response with his normal kind of lackadaisical mush mouth. But by the time he got into it and he worked himself up and he actually had some fire and emotion, he actually did a pretty good goddamn promo. And he told MJF, he said, forget his fucking advice because he'd rather be able to look himself in the mirror and win the AEW championship and be proud of himself and blah, blah, blah. So he actually did a good fucking job there. I must give him some small smattering of applause. Um, the problem is this is probably going to be a good TV match, but there's no way it works on pay-per-view. Is there? I don't think so. And that was one of my thoughts watching this. Is it going to end up being a multi-person match with all the pillars? Or are they actually just going to do Jungle Boy versus MJF as a... Can't they just match? do a one pill at a time instead of all the pillars <laughs> at the same time? You know, you're right that Jungle Boy worked himself up to doing as good a job as we've seen him do on a promo, especially in front of the building. But it took a while to get there, it felt like. Yeah, well, because he had to talk himself into it. See, that's the thing. He's admitted he doesn't have confidence in promos and doesn't like to do them, and you can tell. But he actually got into that. And then, so he gives the big response, and then MJF, here's something that nobody has even brought up as far as I've seen or mentioned. MJF tells Jungle Boy that he talked to Jungle Boy's hot girlfriend, Anna Jay. And Anna Jay says that Jungle Boy is weak between the knees. And of course, then Jungle Boy uh, tackles him. But let's back up before we get to the fight. Why is the girlfriend of one of the sweet, kind baby faces in the one of the top heel groups appreciating Fucking, wasn't she Anna J.A.S.? No, she still is, I think. I mean... Well, then then why is she appreciating Jericho? Shouldn't she be Anna J.B.J.P.? Jungle Boy Jack Perry? Must be a weird conversation when she comes home after a day of work. So, uh, how are things with, uh, Chris? What happens if, <laughs> if you know, yeah, if if they're on the opposite side of the ring... Does she, does she interfere and poke him in the eyes or whatever? Why are they, if, if it's going to be made public, why haven't they split Anna JAS out of the JAS because that's not important compared to the world champion and who he's fucking working with? My question. I don't know. And there's your answer. All righty, but then... <laughs> Jungle Boy tackles him and they get in a fight and Jungle Boy hits him with a big-ass clothesline and before he can do anything else, MJF bails out. So it was an okay match, but a really good promo segment. Hot crowd at times, especially when MJF came out, but they popped pretty big for, you know, these guys coming out. It seemed like they were really into the show. 
and uh, seeing these people live, and that helped things. And, you know, they're really trying with Jungle Boy or Jack Perry. I mean, they haven't got rid of Jungle Boy yet. That'll be the big move when they get rid of Jungle Boy and just call him Jack Perry or Jungle Jack, whatever. How about Jungle Jack? And then he could have his partner, Jim, could come in and be Jungle Jack and Jungle Jim. And then he'll call him Jungle Jack off. Well, there you go. I like it. All righty, so Officer Bar Brady was in the back with Don Fallis and Kenny Olivier, and real briefly, last week, Don Fallis took a bump on purpose, tried to blame Adam, or wanted Kenny to blame Adam Page. Now Don is saying that he lost his balance, and, you know, it was just an unfortunate thing, but why did Kenny assume that his good friend hangnail Adam Page attacked him. Why was that your first thought? And Don's going to go over and smooth things over with Adam Page. So maybe this is their thread of intrigue for the show, right? So what? explain to me the video with the acclaimed and Billy Gunn and the Jericho jobbers, the Daddy Mac Mac Daddy and Cool Hand Luke. What, what was happening there and Hager? I'm not exactly sure. It just kind of popped up on the screen. I don't know what the buildup was. If there was something where uh, the Jericho people won the acclaim for a day, like made for a day. <laughs> I'm not sure what it was or if it was set up on one of the other shows, but all of a sudden, this buddy video popped up. Well, they were together. They were having dinner. They were having fun at a ball game. They were at an amusement park. And they were saying things, but it was incoherent. And I. Uh, Speaking of incoherent, there was a six-man tag team match with Dalton Castle and the boys against the BBC. And Dalton Castle and the boys got about halfway to the ring. And then the former babyface, now heel BBC, jumped him in the aisle, beat him up on the floor. <laughs> the corpse referee stood in the ring hands askew and mouth agape again. And Claudio beat one of the boys, beat a boy with a powerbomb, and they left. Thoughts? This is Moxley's dream. Just let me come in there and kill everyone, and then Shh. I leave. It'll be so cool. It'll be so cool. It'll be It'll like, rock. It'll be like It'll Rambo. It'll really rock. It'll be cool. So then Barb Brady was in the back with Hangnail. And he's asking, the buckaroos are still banged up. They got carted off in the wambulance um, last week, and they're still banged up. And now, Barb Brady asked who did it, and Brian, did you hear what he said? Did you hear what Adam Page responded when Barb Brady said, who beat up the Bucks? He said it was the Blackpool fellows, didn't he? Yes. And then what was the next thing he said? I don't remember. What did he say? He said the BBC. <laughs> did he really? <laughs> Go back and goddamn. I, I dare anybody. Go back and I rewound it three or four times. He said BBC as big as, as fucking Christmas. And then <coughs> here came Don Fallis. And he apologized sincerely for causing this trouble and blah, blah, blah. And suddenly, the BBC jumped page. And they're kicking the shit out of him. And Callis is just standing there. And finally, he offers his hand to Moxley. 
and Moxley nails fucking Don, and Don goes down, and apparently he wasn't supposed to, but when he took the bump off camera, he bashed his head into something and busted his own head open, and he was, and when the camera panned down at the end of the thing, going to the break, he's in a pool of blood. So now Moxley, if he just touches people, they bleed somehow. Last week on the show, I think it was last week, the Blackpool Combat Club were fighting with the Dark Order in a match, and then apparently all throughout the arena, throughout the show, so they were able to come back out at the end, right? Was that last week or two weeks ago? I forget. Two weeks, whatever, yeah. So they're always doing this. This week, Moxley has this match where they just destroy Dalton Castle and his boys. And then the next segment starts, and they just go back there and kick the shit out of him, too. This is Moxley's dream booking program. Every single segment is, I kick the shit out of this guy, and then I kick the shit out of this guy. You know, somebody said on Twitter today, said Moxley reminds them of Al Bundy continuing to talk <laughs> about his touchdowns at Polk High. And you know what? And And he is starting to look a bit facially, and with his hairline, like, fantastic comedic actor ed, o- ed o'neill so oh he's a bad he's, no, he's a badass though ed o'neill's a black belt in uh gracie jujitsu well that's true but yeah. you know for the sake of play acting ed o'neill was a badass that play acted as an idiot and moxley's an idiot that play acts as a badass so they share certain characteristics anyway so now Mox, or not Moxley, but he's back to uh, Don Fallis has been left in a pool of his own blood, of his own making. Whatever he hit on the way down. And they like come Rocky back. Like Rocky Three, Just like Rocky Three, Mickey, yeah. And poor Mickey. Uh, now it was supposed to be Jose Lothario at the Alamo Dome, but Sean didn't like that either. But anyway. I got two words for you. Eye of the Tiger. all right smart ass so the point is now suddenly tony shivani wanting to be the bearer of bad tidings kenny olivier is about to go out and defend his prestigious in some circles iwgp united states heavyweight championship and they get a shot of him in the back, and Tony Schiavone runs up to him with the microphone and says, Kenny, I know you got a big match, but I just thought you'd know that, that Don and Hangnail have been attacked in the back by the BBC. And, of course, he turns around and goes, Don's been attacked? Didn't say anything about Hangnail. But then Tony said, well, we know you've got a big match, but we, we thought you should know. And then he's like, ah, oh, but I've got to concentrate. And he goes back into his zone. So his He's completely distracted in this whole thing. And by the way, this is one of those times where Omega's acting is kind of right. Like, what the fuck? Why are you <laughs> running up to me with this microphone to this camera to tell me this now? Ah. Right now? <laughs> we thought you should know. <laughs> that should so, be Shivani's new gimmick. He just confronts people backstage with yes. information at bad times. Not the way you're... <laughs> your house has just been taken away by a tornado. We just thought you should know. <laughs> Your wife was leaning out the second floor window screaming, help me, as the fucking thing went up in the air. But we thought you should know. Good luck with the match. Good luck, yes. May the best man win. (laughs) Hope you're on your game out there. All right. So the U.S. title match, another championship belt on the program. 
was Kenny against Jeff Cobb. So again, this Jeff Cobb is interesting. And what they do is they bring him in every six to 12 months so that he can do a job for somebody. And I am seeing a lot of him, but I'd rather see some of him than a lot of these people I'm seeing every week. But nobody gives a shit because he comes in every six months and somebody beats him. Um, idle question, is Twinkle Toes going bald or is it that stupid top knot on his head that pulls it back, makes him look like Pippi Longstocking that is <laughs> just causing it, it's, it's almost like his head is being drawn to a point. Oh, so you're, you're not saying you see a bald spot, you're saying that the, uh, the, the, the hairline, the hairline is it's being, all being pulled back into whatever the fuck that apparatus is up there. That would be something. You ever think about a bald Omega? I've never thought about Omega, much less <laughs> so, unless it's foisted off in front of me here. So Jeff Cobb's strength, very impressive. He looks like an in-shape version of Apache Bull Ramus facially. Did you get that? Did you see that? I could see it now that you say it. He's got a good heelish attitude, um, you know, and he's trying in this thing. And they go through a break, obviously, and he got the heat on... Kenny, and then Kenny made his comeback, and he the faces and the gesticulating, and he's got the most awkward, unnatural way of movement for a pro wrestler that I've... And he throws punches like Aunt Lola. So we we got to the end of this thing. I, I wrote the note, if Cobb was winning, I'd say they were pushing the right guy, but I knew that was not going to happen. So, and Cobb's V-trigger even looks better. He fucking, he's got a hell of a fucking leg on him. But anyway, finally, Kenny hit the one-wing ferry, one, two, three, right in time for 9 p.m. Because at that point, here comes the BBC, and they surround the ring like they're going to kick the shit out of Kenny. But here comes Brian Danielson, and gets in the ring, and waves him off, says, get away from this man. You know, stay away, hold on, and he helps Kenny up, gives him his hand, helps him up, and then turns around and gives him the big flying knee. Boom! And now they're kicking the shit out of Kenny. And Harpo's selling like he's really going to be playing a harp with the rest of the Angels. He's just, oh my God, they sent some people down to try to help out, but they got wiped out and never attempted to get back up. So I guess they were all poisoned by curari or something but anyway in the middle of all that the one thing i loved was danielson's in the ring he gets the labelle lock whatever on kenny and then just grabs instead of a cross face just grabs him up under his nose and hits a single bicep with the other arm while he's got fucking twinkle nose by the honker and you know what a fucking heel and they go off the air with the BBC, you know, intimidating everyone. And Danielson screaming, or not off the air, but to the break. Uh, Danielson screaming at Kenny, you're everything that's wrong with wrestling. I thought heels were supposed to lie, didn't you? Traditionally, yes. But uh, so, so now we get Brian as a heel again. But it, now there's four people in this fucking group. Can't they sacrifice Wheeler useless to the fucking pagan gods or something? 
Like they do over in Blackpool? I think first we gotta get to Blood and Guts with the Elite and Adam Page. Oh, God damn it. Against the Blackpool Combat Club, and we'll see whose side Don Callis is on. I said it before as a joke, <sighs> but it's true now that two weeks in a row, a show-long storyline. That's what I'm trying to say there. That's the bloodline. This is the mudline. <laughs> got the mud show guys over here doing the mudline. Oh. Well, speaking of mud, let's sling a little. For the international title, following the U.S. title. See, now there, oh, Kenny, he's only the U.S. champion. But oh, Pockets, he's the international champion. Pockets is now 26-1 and one in his last 27 matches with 16 straight wins. And meanwhile, Powerhouse Hobbs is not on the program, and Generalissimo Francisco Franco is still dead. So, Pockets is wrestling the butcher with the baker. But the baker attacks Pockets before the bell, and both the heels rough him up, and then the baker pulls out a collapsible police baton, <laughs> which the announcers, I think, I think it was Excalibur, but I'm surprised Taz didn't know what was going on, but Sockface, I think, referred to it as a crowbar. Apparently, he has not had as much interaction with the fucking police as one would think from a guy that wears a mask out in public. But he takes a collapsible police baton, does the baker, and is going to fucking whack pockets with it. So the referee, taking authority upon himself, kicks the baker out of ringside. For They've just jumped this guy. Now they've got a goddamn weapon, and they're attempting to fucking mug him, and that's the punishment that the referee, okay, you can't stay ringside. You think? And then the referee asks pockets, you want to wrestle? And rings the bell, and instantly Pockets is 100% running and ducking and dodging. The way that works is if the, if the babyface doesn't want to lose their chance at a title, not two guys have just attacked me that I'm supposed to be wrestling one of them, and they beat me up, and now I'm supposed to fight the other with that. So anyway. So to the finish, I got to tell the finish. I Normally, I wouldn't pay it much attention to the comedy portion of the program, the cheetah segment of the Tarzan movie. But the finish is the baker comes back out and hits Pockets in the back with the police baton. And then the butcher, the 300-pound man, hits this idiot with a backbreaker and gets a two-count. And then Muffin Top and Cupcake run down and jump on the baker and cupcake hits the butcher with the baton <laughs> and rolls him in the ring and pockets uses roman reigns's superman punch one two three so the baton worked on a 300 pound man but not a 160 pound gas station attendant page four all right What'd you think of Willow and Ruby Soso? Well, let me just say on the last match, because obviously I didn't watch it, because who gives a shit about any of that? But someone had a great comment in the Cultural Cornet Facebook group, and I wish I had the person's name in front of me. The butcher now looks like the love child of hard-boiled Haggerty and the Swedish chef. 
But I didn't watch the next match either, Willow and Ruby. I only had so much time. Okay, well, r- real quickly, Ruby Soso came out with Soraya and Tony. They're the the outcasts now. And, uh, and, of course, Ruby wins. Instead of painting Willow, they were going to put her leg in a chair and break it. This kind of angles the girls are doing. They wonder why the fucking guys' angles can't get over because they're trying to break each other's legs over in the women's division. But before they could break the leg, here came Blue Sky and Riho. And they hit the ring. And guess what happened, Brian? The heels cut them off and kicked the shit out of them, too. And I was so happy to see that. Because Riho didn't have her lead pipe. Apparently, it was it was confiscated over at the gate at, at the airport. The blade took it to help the butcher. Well, no, this... <laughs> No, Riho carries a four-foot-long <laughs> yeah, imitation know. <laughs> lead pipe. The police baton looked legitimate, but it was only about 18 inches and in black. All right, so anyway, the heels are kicking the shit out of Riho and Blue Sky, and Willow's still down there somewhere. And they grabbed Riho, and they were about to paint her, and then Jamie Hayter music played. This is the seventh girl to join this slumber party. And she hit the ring. And for 20 seconds, Jamie Hayter was the most exciting wrestler on the planet. It looked stiff too, but she kicked a shit out all three of these heels and they bailed out. And it looked, like I said, it looked great. And then apparently out of all of this, okay, now let me just recap. Ruby Soso beats Willow in a heelish manner, and then they go to break her leg, Ruby and Soraya and Tony. So Willow could be mad at all three of them, right? But here comes Blue Sky and Riho to make the save. So Blue Sky and Riho are obviously on Willow's side, and they're mad at Ruby and Soraya and Tony. But when Hater comes out, she kicks the shit out of Ruby and Soraya and Tony, so she should be on the side of Blue Sky and Riho and Willow, right? Right? You would think. Guess what match we're getting next week on TV? I saw the graphic. Jamie Hater versus Riho. What? So Hater sticks her hand out and Riho accepts it. And then Riho stands there and makes the belt sign around her waist. It, she can actually put both of her hands on her hips and she's touching her thumbs and fingers around her waist. She's one foot shorter and 60 pounds lighter than Jamie Hayter, and that's not making Jamie Hayter out to be fucking Nicole Bass. And that's the match that we get on TV after all of these multiple fucking angles. And you know what the problem is? Jamie Hayter ran out there. The crowd went crazy for her. She looked great in there. Look, the crowd is what made her. That's what turned her. Even though the turn was botched, she should have turned on Britain. They should have gone with her as a baby face and not worried about all this outcast fake NWO crap. But she runs out there, super over, saves Riho, who just got her ass kicked, and rightly so by the heels. Now she's going to go have a competitive match and it'll go like 12 minutes with her. 
That's the yes, problem. and 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 that little ungrateful bitch Riho. But don't call her that. Well, what am I supposed to think when this? She was about to be painted green, and suddenly this girl comes out and 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 runs her uh, attackers off, and the first thing she does is well, not say hey, thank you for saving my ass, but I want your belt. Well, she didn't say anything. The matchmaker did something. No, Riho is standing there going, the belt around the waist, the oh. universal symbol that Vince McMahon despises. Oh, I stopped watching by that point. I didn't see that. Yes. Okay. okay. She's standing there looking at Jamie Hayter going, belt around waist movement with hand. Vince would fire her on the spot for that. <laughs> he hates that. Oh, fuck. Really? That's why, that's why you'd never see anybody up there do it, or very rarely. So you can't... They, so it's not just that you can't say belt, you can't even mime a belt. I don't even like that anymore. It's so overdone and so and it was so out of place here. And it's a it <laughs> looked like it looked like Riho had just learned sign language and was like, please, may I have water? You know, I don't what the fuck. Anyway. So then we had very brief, very brief, pre-taped Powerhouse Hobbs comments. And that was his contribution to the television program. At least it wasn't QTV. Step in the right direction. It wasn't QTV. <laughs> it wasn't good TV either. You know what? You know what's funny? Every time they start and stop things with Hobbs, it always ends up with just some video in the shadows of him. <laughs> like at night. Yeah. It always comes back the same way. And finally, we are at our main event. And ladies and gentlemen, when I say that the anticipation for this match is off the charts, I am lying. The anticipation for Adam Cole's return has been growing and people have been following his progress and wanted to see him come back and they like him and his, his entrance, they're overjoyed to see him back. But his first match back after 276 days, as they mentioned to us, is against Daniel Garcia. I'm Again, I'm not saying that Adam shouldn't start back with a number of good, decisive wins in seven or eight minutes. Nice, competitive little thing and, you know, get some wins. But his first match back, one would think, they tried to make it a big deal when they, you know, bought out Party Mart of the streamers. But, uh, and when when Garcia made his entrance, the air was sucked out of the room after Adam Coles. And this was the television main event. They're going strictly on, will everybody stick around to see Adam's first match back? But we didn't do anything to give him an interesting first match back. And, he, you know, he's in cardio shape, and he was tanned, and he can work. And it was maybe a little bit rusty at the start. Tanning isn't lifting. Well, I'm just saying, you know. Tanning isn't lifting. He's doing the other cosmetic things. I was trying to do the compliment sandwich. He's in cardio shape. He's got a tan. He can work. He maybe was a little bit rusty at the start. But. Do you think maybe he, like, believe like, there are certain people, like, you know, I'm not going in a political direction here, but like they said, Donald Trump doesn't believe in exercise. Like he thinks that like wears you down actually as opposed no, to the no. opposite. Do you think maybe like Adam Cole thinks like weightlifting is bad for no, the body? It, it, look, at, look at the pictures when he was in NXT. 
and look at now. And I know he's had a rough go with the concussions, and we were talking about it either earlier in this marathon program or the last show we did. If it's medical, I can understand that, but he was getting smaller before he was off all this time. And it he's just... He had a look and a presence and some type of physique in NXT with, that is not looking the same here now, is what I'm saying. But nevertheless, it doesn't matter because this match was not any good. And I hate to say that because I like Adam, but uh, I'm not a fan of Garcia because fuck if he was... <laughs> If he was in some, you know, wonderful indie circuit somewhere where he might get some experience, but he was foisted off on us again like everybody is. He appears and you can't get rid of him. He never wins, but he's on every show in every no. match. No, he wins. He beat Danielson. No, but listen to me. Remember when he first showed up, he beat nobody. He was on every show. We're like, where the fuck did this guy come from and why can't we get rid of him? And after they beat him into powder, then he starts winning. And then they put him in a fucking group as a stooge and blah, blah, blah. But nevertheless, within two minutes of this match, Garcia picks up Adam Cole and gives him a fucking pile driver right on top of his head. Adam rolls out to the floor and the referee, instead of starting a count, goes out to check on him. And that's the break spot. So within two minutes of this thing, Adam Cole, who is coming off concussions, I know they're trying to tell his story, but he's also coming off we ain't seen this motherfucker wrestle in nine months. And you've just pile-drived him flat on top of his head two minutes into the goddamn match. And then they're gone in the break when they come back. Within 15 seconds, he's making a comeback, Adam Cole. And hits the, the big move or the drops the gown back of his head on the knee to count. So now he's coming back. We've only seen two and a half minutes of this fucking match. And that's what it ended up being. There was very little shine. There was a microscopic amount of heat that we saw on television. And then they did a fucking eight-minute back-and-forth finish that would just... At one point, Garcia hits a big German suplex and boom, and goes for a super kick and Cole is up and hits, him, hits his own super kick and gets a two-count. Or then. It Cole's in a leg lock, the heel's submission hold, and gets a rope break, and then Adam's selling, and Garcia does nothing, and then he argues with the crowd, and then he goes up on the ropes to glorify to the crowd, and then the referee comes over and tells him something, and then he goes back to Adam Cole. It's like a minute later, nothing happened. Did he get lost? What the fuck? Then... He goes back over, picks him up, and gives him another pile driver for a two count. And the very next move made by either one of these guys after he, Garcia pile drives Cole for a two count is Cole gets up and super kicks Garcia and hits the Panama Sunrise after he just got pile drived. And then the knee to the back of the head, one, two, three. Ida did Garcia get lost, go blank. It doesn't matter anyway. How can Adam Cole, with the experience that he's got, 
justify the sequence of whatever the fuck happened, unless that's not what was supposed to happen. And then Britt Baker came out and hugged him. And then the streamers dropped. It looked like Luger at SummerSlam. Same thing I thought. Same thing I thought. You know, and then Jericho came out, picks up Garcia, and does the dramatic thing twice. Once at the ring and once on top of the ramp where he looks backwards over his shoulder derisively at Adam Cole, slowly and derisively. Dramatic foreshadowing. So poor Adam Cole. <laughs> the 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 young most popular fucking guy now in the company is coming back. So you just know Chris Jericho got to get him some of that. The adrenochrome of Adam Cole. You knew that as soon as they booked him with Garcia. It was all about Jericho. Like that was the clue right there. You know, <sighs> for me, you know, there's two different things. There's the good story of Adam Cole, who everyone universally says is the sweetest guy in the world. You talk to wrestlers, like, he's such a sweetheart, yeah. this guy. They all love him. And it's good that he's healthy enough to be in the ring wrestling. But on the other hand, one, I'm going to get real tired real quick if he's going to have to sell possible concussions every single match. Because that's what he did several times here. Every time he went to the ground, he's holding his head. And the other thing is, one would, one would have thought a pile driver would have even more effect then, wouldn't one? But nevertheless. Well, you never know what it will be later in the day. Obviously, the pile driver kicked things in, and that caused the uh, super kick. But Adam Cole, for me, is one of the big exposés personally in how I feel about wrestlers superficially. I said it a couple weeks ago. I'm all for fat guys in wrestling. I like a variety of body types and people and personalities. But when I watch Adam Cole, especially in there with Garcia, who... You know, looks athletic, but doesn't have any sort of remarkable... I don't think you would see that guy walking down the street and go, that's a wrestler. Not that that's a... But next to Adam, but next wow, to that's Adam, a big fucking guy. Man, he's just so small, and his arms are so small, and there's no muscle tone in his legs. And, you know, the fake tan looked all right, but even that wasn't perfect. And again, tanning isn't lifting. And then, like I saw it several times at the end when he went for a few of the kicks, the thigh slaps... The the thigh slaps that I really have a problem with are the ones where you could just see the guy holding his hand above his thigh waiting to slap. <laughs> like, that's where I have a problem with it. Otherwise, you know, if you do it right, you do it right. Yeah. yeah. But when you could see the guy waiting to do it, that takes me out of it. And, you know, I want to root for the guy. Besides that, if he don't stop losing thigh, he's going to have a hard time hitting it. <laughs> very, very good point. Well, you win two points for you. But... They're going to probably go all the way with him. I'm pretty sure they'll set him up for MJF if this babyface thing works out. Now they're going all the way with him and Britt. Apparently, I didn't see the reality show yet, but it was all about Britt and him. We're, we're going to be forced at some point to at least weigh in with an opinion on that thing. I have a feeling, but I'm not in a hurry. You didn't watch it either? I, I, I just, if I only had time. But I don't know. I want to root for the guy on a personal level, you know, but... Just because he doesn't have a silly gimmick like Orange Cassidy doesn't mean it doesn't look to some of us as ridiculous in terms of him being in there. It just doesn't... I can't, like, I can't think of anyone I used to play sports with that looked that out of shape. Or not even out of shape, just... Not out of shape, just... Not in shape. Not, no shape. No shape. He's, 
He's in shape. Video There's, game shape. He has, he's there. Well, he's in cardio shape. I mean, he, you know, he could run circles around me at least. I don't know about you. I know you're ex-marathon running and, you know, the, the fucking uh, dog sled thing you used to do, the Iditarod. But the point is, there's he's hardly there. He's getting smaller. And for the first match back, again, I go back to the traditional wrestling stuff because sometimes that is what works best. Should he have had a competitive match with a Daniel Garcia or anyone? Or should he have come in there against someone and win definitively quickly, make people want to see more, not sell his head yet, hit a couple of impressive moves, celebrate with his girl. Jericho gets to do his dramatic acting from the Cody Rhodes acting Academy. (laughs) Here's Chris Jericho. Well, you know, you're right. Here's the, there was a couple of things I I would have done a couple of things, depending on the time frame. If there was a pay-per-view coming up anywhere near, I would have had his return on pay-per-view and give him, some type of legitimate opponent that he could do 10 minutes with and still win. Um, Or if you're going to put it on TV, like you said, maybe six minutes and decisively, but not a non, you know, top guy that he almost gets a shit kicked out of him for the majority of the match and Hail Mary wins it. I, you know, I don't understand that choice. It's kind of like Rocky Five. <laughs> Rocky's a little punch drunk and he's back in Philadelphia. <laughs> he's living with Pauly and he meets Tommy Gunn and then, uh, and then they fight in the street with a bus. Can we get a bus, Tony? How much for a bus for the fight? You know what? Plumber Moxley ought to be a character on South Park. <laughs> I've heard that the, the tone in your voice there when you're doing it. He, he could be the, the yeah. evil Cartman. Or Plumber Bundy. Maybe we'll just change his name to Plumber Al Bundy. All right. We don't have ratings yet. So we're we're possibly going to do an addendum if we can get the ratings in time, right? We will indeed indend. Addend. Addend? <laughs> we'll have an addendum <laughs> later in the show, possibly with the ratings, but... Right here, we'll have another one of our little time travel moments. Well, Jim, we return once again. I feel obligated to say that, although if you're listening to the show, we're just here. We're still here, but we return with the what ratings. What the hell have you been doing for the time warp thing? D- doodling on your diddlator? There, that that melodious toin? Tone? Toin? Tone? This toin? Melodious, yes. melodious tune? <laughs> We're off to such a good start here. Yeah. We're delirious. We've recorded a lot. I can't can't wait to hear about these ratings. Tell me about the ratings. Has Thurston Howell III over there at WrestleNomics got the ratings now? Well, the ratings are up and they are around. And, uh, of course, the uh, quarter hours that we'll talk about were compiled by Brandon Thurston. But the overall rating this week for AEW Dynamite, March 29th, 2023 833,000 viewers. Ouch. That's that's, uh, down from last week, as I recall. These things fluctuate so greatly these days. And Jim, I have the quarter hours. Of course, the show began, as it always does, at 8 p.m. From 8 to 8.15 p.m., quarter one, Matt Hardy versus Jungle Jack Perry with picture-in-picture and the beginning of the MJF Live promo. 
962,000 viewers. Ooh. Is, is, are people losing faith in the Big Bang Theory? Is that uh, is that are, is the lead-in evaporating, or are the big bangers are they getting smart to what's going on and just bailing right at eight o'clock? Have you ever tried to watch that show? Yes, tried many times. I don't like any of those people. They're not endearing to me. I, I wish them ill. I root for their failure. Okay, I well. fart in their general direction. <laughs> you took it right the, down the street level. But quarter two, 8.15 to 8.30 p.m., continuation of the MJF-Jack Perry confrontation, Kenny Omega and Don Callis' backstage angle, and an advertising break, it says here, 881,000 viewers. Ouch. Okay, so right off the bat, another 81,000 people, said Sayonara. Quarter 3, 8.30 to 8.45 p.m., the acclaimed Matt Menard-Angelo Parker video. Yeah, what? I, how could that even be described as a video? It was like a montage of phone clips. Dalton Castle and the boys versus the Blackpool Combat Club. Kenny Omega and Jeff Cobb video package. Hangman Adam Page and Don Callis getting beat up by the Blackpool Combat Club. And the beginning of Omega vs. Cobb, 853,000 viewers. As a busy 15 minutes, and 28,000 more people got confused. Quarter 4, 8.45 p.m. to 9 p.m. Kenny Omega vs. Jeff Cobb continued with picture-in-picture picture and the post-match angle with the heel turn of Brian Danielson, 835,000 viewers. Jesus, and another 18,000. So now we're down in the first hour, they've lost 127,000 by my calculations. The 9 o'clock hour, 9 to 9.15 p.m., quarter 5, the Guns video package, and Orange Cassidy versus The Butcher with picture-in-picture, picture, 847,000 viewers. <laughs> so... Good old Pockets brought 12,000 people back into the fold. Good old Pockets. What a good puppy dog. Quarter 6, 9.15 to 9.30 p.m. The finish of Pockets versus The Butcher. The post-match. Jay Cargill and the baddies backstage promo. Oh, God, I, I fast-forwarded through that. That was all right. It looked, looked like a police lineup. Other than Sterling being involved, it was all right. That's what that's what made it look like a police lineup with that fucking weaselly looking shyster in there. Juice Robinson's backstage promo and Ruby Soho. Oh jeez, I must I must have thought he was a commercial on fast forward. <laughs> and Ruby Soho versus Willow Nightingale with picture in picture 820,000 viewers and 27,000 more left. Quarter 7, 9:30 to 9:45 p.m. The final four minutes of Soho versus Nightingale, the post-match angle with the outcasts, Rio, Sky Blue, and Jamie Hayter, and the powerhouse Hobbs backstage promo. Yeah, he was in a fucking dark closet 
And he got uh, like 20 seconds of comments to make. How can that even be a backstage promo? It's all right. No one saw it. 747,000 viewers. Oh, boy. Howdy. There goes another. There goes another rubber tree plant. There goes uh, 73,000 more people. So we are now down 200 and. Oh, God. Uh, 15,000 people from the start of the program. Is, is there anywhere left to go? What was the main event? Oh, my God. Quarter eight. They set him up in a death slot here, apparently. 9.45 to 10 p.m. Adam Cole versus Daniel Garcia with picture-in-picture picture and the post-match celebration with Britt Baker and Chris Jericho's emoting Chris Jericho's side-eye. 719,000 viewers. Oh, my God. So, And remember, uh, there was an AEW reality show on after this, so it wasn't like Power Slap was after this. It was more AEW content to come. Yeah, Power, power Slap has got Power Slapped. Uh, but, yeah, the AEW folks weren't sticking around for their—do we— I guess we don't have numbers on that yet. Actually, I just saw them. Give me a minute. I'll pull them up. Hold on. Well, in that case, while you're pulling, while you're pulling your number, I will just remark that they started at 962,000 and finished at 719,000. And that is a drop of 243,000 people, which, if I'm just doing quick math in my head, would be 30, uh, 30 to 35% in that window of the audience left by the end of the program. Give me a second. I'm pulling it up right now. Well, geez, how long does it take you to pull that thing up? You're not as young as you used to be. It wasn't where I thought it was. Okay, the premiere oh, episode of AEW. I, I, I keep mine in the same place all the time. All Access drew 328,000 viewers. Woo! So even... Handsome. <laughs> Woo, mercy. That's what Tony Khan said. Daddy, mercy. Mercy on me, daddy. I'm sorry, daddy. Brother, howdy. So, the basically, the 719,000 most diehard AEW viewers that sat through that program, then better than half of them said, oh, fuck no, we're not going to watch anything about behind the scenes about AEW, which apparently from what we hear on the internet is the most interesting part about AEW. Perhaps it's because that this stuff was approved by AEW, even though it's probably an expose, we haven't seen it yet, it's probably embarrassing, bunch of fucking whiny-ass little hand-ringers, you know, fucking stressing about their horrible lives since they're all young and making money and working for a billionaire. And uh, almost 400,000 of the people that were left at the end of the program said, you know what? Nah. What does it say about Adam Cole? Well, I was going to say, what does it say? It, it doesn't say anything about Adam Cole, my God. You know, what was, the NXT, honest, number? Because, what was the NXT number when he was on top? Uh, Probably around the same thing or a little bit better because that's when they were head to head, right? Yeah, that's right. But what I'm saying is it doesn't say anything about Adam Cole if you put Adam Cole against fucking Rooster Cogburn 
there's some limit. Who wanted to see him against Daniel Garcia and a reason manufactured just because it was his first match back? That's what we were talking about. Either make it big against a more top guy, put it on pay-per-view if possible, or elsewise just give him a fucking convincing win, but they kissed their sister in the middle there. Anyone who saw El Hijo del Vikingo, if that's how you pronounce it, excuse me if I got it wrong, last week on the show and said, oh, I want to see that guy again. He was impressive. Not a sign of him on this show. <laughs> and they sat there and they said, well, El Hijo del Bicho. I can't find that son of a gun. But anyway, so yeah, and, and then uh, 328,000 is the overall number for the reality show. We can assume that it started high and ended lower just simply because now we're 11 to, no, we're 10 to 11, right? Yeah, so 10 we're 10 to 11. To 11. We're yeah. still, we're, we're fighting attrition of sleep at that point. So, my God, they could have been the first wrestling promotion in history over a three-hour block of their programming to lose 600,000 out of their 900,000 viewers. Amazing. Well, another banner week for AEW, and we'll be here to talk about it next time it happens, but let's get we'll, back. We'll be, we'll be covering them like a fucking undertaker, covering our latest handiwork. Well, let's get back to the future and guess the program here on the drive-thru. We are back. Whoa. We are back from the <sighs> ratings. Jesus Christ. Here we are, and uh, now we're going to end the show with some guess the program. Yeah, after you've got my ears ringing, I told you I was gonna I was gonna steamroller you today on this thing. I'm 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 feeling good. I'm looking good. I've been working out. I've been doing push-ups, pull-ups, chin-ups, sit-ups. I threw up once. I'm okay now. I'm ready to do guess the program. Of course, the way this works is I go through my program collection, things that I have, things that I have acquired, things that arrive here at Last Manor, and I, I think we got that idea. Okay, well, fuck it. God damn it. We'll go right to the first program. Well, no, I mean, we know that they're your programs and you possess them, but the premise is you're going to give me the lineup and I'm going to tell you where it was and hopefully the year, if not approximately, then exactly. Yes. That's the premise. And I'm going to start you with an easy one because you are an older gentleman. I'm going to start you with an easier <laughs> one. <sighs> the first match listed, best two out of three falls, 60-minute time limit. For the World Tag Team Championship, Don and Bobby Fields versus Butch Boyette and Mighty Yankee. Best two out of three falls, 60-minute time limit, Sputnik Monroe <laughs> versus Pepe Pasquale. There'll be a 10-minute intermission where lucky numbers will be announced. Can't wait for that. And the main event... For the World Championship, and let me just actually see on the program if it's... But yeah. World Junior Heavyweight Championship. Okay. Billy Wicks against the champion, Mike DiBiase. Okay. Well, Don and Bobby Fields are the sons or family members of Lee Fields and Speedy Hatfield and the Fields family of Alabama that were related to the Welch Fuller family. And uh, they ran, obviously, Gulf Coast Wrestling before 
it became continental or southeastern, whatever. Butch Boyette is an alter ego of Mario Galento. The Mighty Yankee could have been anybody at that point. Sputnik Monroe, obviously, we know who Sputnik is. And the World Junior Heavyweight title being on the line with Iron Mike DiBiase against Billy Wicks. Wicks and Sputnik obviously drew tons of money in 1959 in Memphis. And. Sputnik was always a favorite, as was Billy Wicks of the Fullers and Welches. Well, Sputnik longer. Billy Wicks pretty much got out of the business on a full-time basis in the early 60s. So this is going to be the Alabama Territory, the Gulf Coast Territory. It's probably going to be Mobile. Uh, and... It would be in the huh, it would probably be possibly the year before Sputnik and Billy Wicks drew all that money in Memphis. Because if I remember correctly, at least Sputnik and I believe for sure Billy Wicks had come from working Alabama for the for the uh, Fieldses and the Fullers, Welches. I'm going to say 1958 Mobile, Alabama. Very interesting. And let me apologize in advance. The weather is nice. The gardeners are out, so you may hear some background noise or buzzing. But, Jim, this program, sponsored by American Legion Post Number 1, Memphis, Tennessee. What? Monday night, July 6, 1959. Son of a bitch! In red ink. That may be Christine Jarrett's at the top of the program. Attendance, 7,400. Son of a bitch. I would not. The feels is threw me off with Mario Galento being called Butch Boyette. I thought they were in Alabama. But I was right on. I was almost right on the year. I was actually right on the year without knowing it and then called it the year beforehand. There was never a more glorious night for wrestling fans of Memphis and the Mid-South than last Monday night when Billy Wicks, sensational young junior heavyweight Matt Starr, won the Tennessee Wrestling Championship and also a brand new Cadillac. He defeated Sputnik Monroe in a hard-fought three-fall bloody match that had the 8,000 fans, who were lucky enough to get inside the jam-packed auditorium, screaming the entire three falls. Who was writing this for them for the programs i at that point in time i have no idea but that indicates that was a sellout because the ellis auditorium maxed out at about eight thousand people so that was during that hot summer run that sputnik and wicks were having even when they weren't working with each other all right unfortunately i got a few different memphis all programs right well now here. you've completely goddamn ruined my fucking mojo yeah yeah that was my fault all right. Yeah, yeah, it was. All right, we have another one here. This one, Jim. The opening match, one fall, Cola Zabisco versus Doran O'Hara, 30-minute time limit. The semifinal match, two out of three falls, 60-minute time limit. Thor Hagen versus Al Spider Galento. And the main event, two out of three falls, Mike Clancy and Eduardo Perez versus Al Smith and John Smith. And I'll also throw this in there. Coming soon, Wild Red Berry. 
All right. You are attempting to throw me off. This is going to be either East Tennessee or possibly again a Birmingham, Alabama type. No, that's not a big enough card for Birmingham. Al Spider Galento obviously was a Tennessee mainstay in the 40s and 50s. He helped train Tommy Gilbert. He was a very well thought of worker. Um, the Smith brothers had the beards and were, the gimmick was they were the Smith brothers that looked like the cough drop box of the time. Mike Clancy was a journeyman and Eduardo Perez worked quite a bit around the Southern Territory. Thor Hagen, do I remember him from Minnesota, possibly? Uh, the first two, there's no way to tell. Um, is this East Tennessee? This is indeed East Tennessee. I'm going to say Kingsport... Early 60s, 19, I'm just guessing, 1962. The date, October 19th, 1956. Ah, shit. Knoxville, Tennessee. Knoxville. Son of a bitch. All righty then. At least I got the region. Wild Red Berry is on his way. Irish Mike Clancy in a tag team bout. Mike Pedusis has an injured arm. All right, now, goddammit, if you'd have told me that. <laughs> no. Right. Mike Pedusis played football for the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. Oh. Wow, so that would have been a clue. There you go. Well, how about this See, one? He still wrestled a lot in Kingsport and whatever, but nevertheless. The first event in a colored men's wrestler match, Tex Brady, the Southern Negro heavyweight champ, Dallas, Texas, Versus Willie Love from Savannah, Georgia. One fall, 15 minutes. Okay. I've never heard either one of those names before in my life. The second event, <laughs> either of I, to be honest. The second event, Tough Tony Morelli, Bronx, New York, versus Cliff Swede Olson. One fall, 15 minutes. The third event, again, one fall, 15 minutes. Nick the Wild Man Roberts, Tampa, Florida, versus Bob Geigel. <laughs> In the semifinal for the World's Tag Team Champion, Championship, excuse me, with words, the World's Tag Team Championship, Art Nelson and Doug Donovan, the champions, oh. versus Sonny Myers and Silent Joe Hamilton. Two out of three falls, one hour time limit. And finally, the main event, for the world's junior heavyweight championship, once again, the champion Iron Mike DiBiase versus Dory Funk Sr. Oh. No senior here, but I'm saying senior just right. to make sure you understand. Just because Dory Jr. would have been 12. Um, With the same okay. haircut, though, so it looked the same. Same haircut. Uh, we're, in, we're in Texas or New Mexico, potentially. Let's examine this. Uh, nobody knows Tex Brady and Willie Love, but the fact that it was advertised as a world colored 
title or whatever the fuck, they're down south, and and it leads me to Texas because of Nick Roberts, who was Baby Doll's father, and who later on would become the promoter for Fritz von Erich in, in at least Lubbock, if not Amarillo. Bob Geigel is most noted as a big star in the central states and uh, later on the NWA president, but he spent a lot of time in Texas early in his career. The world tag title, Art Nelson, was a name wrestler for years in a number of territories, um, even to Carolinas, but Doug Donovan would later on become one of the Von Brauners, was he not? Uh, I guess so. You know what? For whatever reason, my mind went to Dandy Jack Donovan. No. Danny yeah. Jack Donovan is a completely different person. Yeah, you're Doug right. Donovan yeah. one of the Von Brauners. That's right. Because the, the, picture, uh, the yeah. other Von Brauner, was he Kurt or was he Carl? Because the other Von Brauner was named Jimmy Brauner, which is where they got it from. Nevertheless, Sonny Myers, another uh, Missouri, Kansas mainstay, and Jody Hamilton, who obviously was uh, from the Midwest, um... Mike DiBiase, we just talked about on the Memphis card, and Dory Funk. Is this, it's it's definitely West Texas. Sweet Olson was a, a name that worked the Funk's West Texas territory quite a bit. We've established that DiBiase was the world junior heavyweight champion in the late 50s and early 60s. Is this Amarillo, and is it 1959 or 1960? Very, very good. Amarillo, Texas, Thursday, June 25th, 1959. Boom. There we go. A couple interesting things in here. Coming soon, midget wrestlers Joe Scarpello, Anton Ripper-Leone, after his broken leg men's. But listen to this. Attention wrestling fans. Free bus service. Ha! Promoter Doc Sarpolis is furnishing free bus service to and from the wrestling matches every Thursday night. The bus leaves the corner of 6th and Polk at 7.45 p.m. and comes directly to the sports arena. Immediately after the matches, the bus reloads and returns downtown. So hop the bus and attend the matches every Thursday night. How many promoters did that where they got bus service? Well, you know, because on the excellent uh, Amarillo history book that Scott Teal put together, crowbarpress.com, they had a bunch of cars being broken into in the sports arena parking lot at the wrestling matches. There would be things in the newspaper, notices about it. They may have come up with that as a marketing strategy to get people to not be afraid to come. Wrestling returns to Pampa. I, I assume that's how you pronounce that. P-A-M-P-A. P-A-M-P-A. Wrestling is returned to Pampa on Saturday night with Bob Geigel promoting for the Shrine Club. This Saturday, Bob is another great card lineup. And for fans wishing to make reservations early, you may do so by going to Levine's Department Store in Pampa, where advanced tickets are on sale. How about that? Bob Geigel actively wrestling and promoting. Well, in a lot of cases, and of course, Geigel would get into the office in Kansas City, but they would, one of the spot shows or a regular spot show or whatever, they'd give one of the guys, okay, this year, Buddy Wayne did that in Memphis for years. And some of the guys that at the, at the time might be working in the middle of the card, uh, 
but they showed a good business mind or they were enterprising. Yeah, you take Pampa and run that once every six weeks or whatever. Pampa, Texas was the gimmick hometown of outlaw Ron Bass. All right, Jim, this next program here. Uh, by the way, intermissions after the second and third matches. The first event, Butcher Brannigan versus Scott Casey. The second event, Ivan Putsky, 270 out of Poland, versus Lord Alfred Hayes, 240 out of London. In a special event, Black Gordman and Great Goliath versus Hank James, Harlem, 240, and Moondog, Maine, Crabtree, Arkansas, 255. <laughs> the main event, The Sheik, Black Gordman, Great Goliath, what? Lord Alfred Hayes, Butcher Brannigan, and Gary Hart versus Fritz Von Erich, Ivan Putzky, Scott Casey, Moondog, Maine, Tony Charles, and Hank James. Jesus. In a 12-man tag team elimination match. And after the main event, the final event, The Sheik versus Tony Charles. Good Lord. Um, okay, well, obviously we're in Texas. And as I'm looking at this, they obviously in the what what is that a 12 man tag? Yes, a 12 man tag. They've got Gary Hart on one side and Fritz von Erich on the other side because that was the Fritz was the all-time hero and the patriarch and uh as we'll get into here in a second probably on the downhill side of his in-ring career and Gary Hart was the top heel manager. So that was an you know this is not a really attractive card. The Sheik was a fucking major name in the business, but he never had a box office issue with Tony Charles, even though Tony Charles was a great wrestler. But I can't imagine what the match between the Sheik and Tony Charles would look like. Uh, Tony Charles was more in the vein of a Billy Robinson, and we, we know where the Sheik was, where his veins were. Scott Casey, longtime Texan, had wrestled in a variety of places, but most noted for working in Texas. Ivan Putsky was huge in Texas. Uh, and remember Paul Bosch in Houston said he was one of the best baby faces that he ever had when he was doing the Mighty Igor gimmick. And then he went to New York and learned how to speak English. And Paul Bosch said, you've killed Ivan Putsky for us. Uh, Lord Al Hayes, long time in, in Texas. Gordman and Goliath. Same thing. Hank James must have been just passing through. Uh, Moondog Maine, most noted for his runs in Portland and the Northwest and the WWWF as a heel against Pedro. Uh, so we're in, we're in either we're in either Dallas or Fort Worth or something of that nature. And would this have been? Fritz and Gary Hart on it. Would this have been 1975-ish? Potentially 74-ish, 5-ish? The date? January 24th, 1977. Ah! 25 cents, this program. Casa Manana, Fort Worth, Texas. Casa Manana? That is the name here, and I looked it up because I was like, that doesn't sound right. That is indeed the name of the place in Fort Worth, Texas that they ran. It must have uh, 
had to be in a different building for a few weeks. So the not the normal Will Rogers Coliseum or out there at the uh, fairgrounds or whatever. Okay, well, I'm sorry about the year. I, you know what? I should have said that because Fritz was still more active in 74, 75, but the Sheik, again, threw me off. And just that's that's when his territory was going down and he was starting to take more outdates. But boy, you see how... The Freebirds and the Von Erich boys revitalized the world class or the at that time big time wrestling territory in Dallas because that was not a rip snorter of a card, was it? Well, let's see what you think about this next one. Uh, I don't even know where to begin with this one. All right. Oh, oh boy. There will be 10 girl bouts. What? They're not listed, but it says plus 10 girl bouts. I'll start with that. Not a 10-girl bout, but 10-girl bouts? It says 10-girl bouts. Okay. And I actually don't think, based on what I know about this, that sounds like it could be a realistic thing. An extra added attraction tag team match, Golden Moose Cholak and Texas Bruiser versus Bronze Bomber and Slugger Kowalski. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. What are you doing to me here? Let me just see if they have a different name here. Uh, <laughs> Cowboy George Valentine. Oh. The Bobby Sox Darling versus Herman Schmidt. <laughs> the German menace. And finally, in the main event, a non-title match, one fall to the finish. The Southern Rebel Wild Man Fargo the only holder of two world titles and two diamond belts versus the African killer, Gorilla Parker, the Jungle Iron Man. And for the record, this is a photo of the Black Panther actually here. Jim Mitchell? That's right. Son of a gun. Um, okay, obviously this is a Jack Pfeffer production and we're in Chicago. And Cowboy George Valentine was Buddy Fuller. And Jackie, Wildman Jackie Fargo was uh, Jackie Fargo when Pfeffer made him his world champion, uh, which was in between Fargo's runs as part of the Fargo brothers in Tennessee. Uh, I don't think that was really the Black Panther Jim Mitchell as Gorilla Parker. I think that was Jack Pfeffer finding a picture of a black guy. Herman Schmidt, of course, the long-lost cousin from uh, Bulgaria or B Bavaria of Hans Schmidt. Can you Moose imagine Cho pulling that in Chicago? I, where Hans Schmidt was one of the biggest box office attractions. That, yeah. Uh, Moose Cholak was from Chicago, and from what I understand later on in his life after wrestling drove a bus there, and who knows who the fuck his partners and opponents were. So it's, it's Chicago, it's Jack Pfeffer, it's the dark days of the International Amphitheater when Fred Kohler was losing his business and his mind. And what was that, 1963? Or was it 64? This is the International Amphitheater, Friday, December 13th, 1963. Fred Kohler and Jack Pfeffer present the wonder match they said couldn't be made. <laughs> but the other thing, I'm trying to see... If Can you imagine this is the site 
<laughs> not only the International Amphitheater, but we're talking There's... fucking Comiskey Park and Wrigley Field, and we're talking Londo St. Louis, and we're talking Rogers and O'Connor, and we're talking Vern Gagne and Thez, and uh, I mean, every major name in these giant houses, and they were doing ballpark shows in 1960, 61, and 62 with 25 and 30,000 people. And by 1963, that same town and that hallowed arena got Jackie Fargo versus Gorilla Parker and a fake Johnny Valentine against a fake Hans Schmidt. Remember, once Kohler lost the relationship with Tootsmont and Vince McMahon Sr., it was over. He had, My God, he could have he could have fucking called Roy Welch down in Nashville. Roy Welch could have fucking drawn him more money than that. A little more detail on the inside of this. First time in the USA, an international one-night girls wrestling tournament. Winner to be proclaimed the United States Lady Champion and to receive a diamond championship belt uh, presented by Fred Kohler. 20 girls from all over the country, including beautiful Miss Black Orchid, the tallest girl wrestler in the world, six foot two. And then the other thing of note here. Any other names? There are no other names. It's just pictures. That was the biggest. So, so that was the biggest name. If, if, he, if he had a name, he'd advertise it. It's just Even pictures. if he didn't have a name, he'd advertise it. Pictures of various girls. But the interesting thing here is there's an article on why the Fargo match is happening. And there's a reference here I've never seen before. So I'm going to. I'll just read it briefly. The Fargo-Gorilla-Parker match was one of the toughest matches to make. First, there were so many things involved, such as the two diamond belts held by Fargo, which places the wild man Fargo in a position where he could earn $200,000 a year, provided he could retain both the IWA and the World Wrestling Association title. So it goes on further, but the rest... See, even, even Swami wasn't going to swallow that. No, no, everyone's going crazy here. In negotiating... Fargo demanded a $50,000 guarantee if his titles would be at stake in the match. Fred Kohler and Dr. Pfeffer realized <laughs> that the Chicago area wrestling fans are not so much interested in seeing the title change hands as they are in seeing the Southern Rebel Fargo get his brains knocked out when the African killer starts administering his famous cocoa bump on the skull of wild man Fargo. Dr. Pfeffer. Fargo may have been the one taking those cocoa bumps <laughs> even back then. Um, so now, by the way, this is 1963. So $50,000 in 1963 would be somewhere around four or 500 grand today. Wow. Just in relation. Well, there it is. That's the first time I've seen Dr. Pfeffer, though. Dr. Pfeffer, so misunderstood. He's the most original matchmaker in the whole wide world. All right, let's get one more before we wrap things up. Here's a Memphis one. I'm, I'm just going to tell you what the main event is here. Oh, for God's sake. I'm just going to tell you the main event because it's actually a couple of wrestlers, or at least one wrestler I don't know too much about. Tojo Yamamoto and Johnny Long meet the Sky Brothers in a big elimination tag match. Okay, Joe and Bill Sky. What about Johnny Long? Johnny Long was the original brother of Harley Race. Because Johnny Long was a, a veteran, a journeyman, as they used to say. And, and goddamn, he married one of the girls, right? He was, who was he involved with? But anyway, nevertheless, um, Johnny Long was established in the 
Gulas Welsh Southern Territory as a heel, and then he got a brother somewhere, I think, around 1963-ish or whatever, named Jack Long, who was Harley Race. And that's when Harley first bleached his hair blonde, I believe. And they were, Johnny and Jack Long were a, a team in, you know, t in the Tennessee Territory for a while. I think maybe that might have been right around the time that Harley got in that car wreck and got hurt, possibly. Either, either, either he came back from the wreck and became Jack Long or was Jack Long and then got in the wreck. Uh, Joe and Bill Skye were Joe Turner and Bill Bowman. And they, again, the, the Skye brothers, it was kind of a cowboy, you know, westernish gimmick. But they worked as a team under their own names also. And Joe Turner was Dennis Condry's brother-in-law and the guy who broke him into the business. And Dennis's first tag team was with Joe Turner under the hoods for, well, not even Watts, but McGurk uh, in uh, Louisiana as Mephisto and Dante. And we all know who Tojo Yamamoto was. That's right. Well, let's get one last program here, Jim. This one, uh, all exhibitions under jurisdiction of the State Athletic Commission. Opening bout, 20-minute time limit, one fall, Mike Browning versus Mickey Casey. Okay. Second bout, 30-minute time limit, one fall, Chief Thunderbird versus Juan Humberto. Hmm. The third bout, I believe this is a tag team bout, but the way it's done in the program, it's not explicit, but I believe it is. The Angel and Lee Henning versus Bob Roberts and Leo Demetral. Deme Demetral. Demetral. I don't know. Or, I'm not or no, uh, Demet. Shit, I can't do it either. It's uh, Jimmy. I think Demetral. Jimmy Demetral had an athletic show that you see a lot of pictures of the wrestlers on the stage in front of the tent, you know, taking on all comers and everything. So I think it's. Demetral. The main event, one hour time limit, two out of three falls. The Angel versus Bobby Bruns. Well, Jesus Christ, poor Angel. He's got to do uh, double duty there. Um, Jesus Christ. Bulldog Lee Hennig wrestled everywhere. Is this, is this the Angel Maurice Talley? Is this the Angel Tor Johnson? Is this, which Angel is this? Swedish angel, French angel. There's nothing in the program uh, to mention which angel it is. There's no picture. There's no indication. Bobby Bruns was the booker for years in St. Louis, right? And was a big name in the central states. And he's the guy who was responsible for the first American wrestling tour of Japan that led to Ricky Dozan and Japanese wrestling and the whole nine yards, right? That's right. Um, I don't know who the... Chief Thunderbird was a... I know people are going to be shocked at this. A Native American gimmick wrestler. And Juan Humberto, you know, was a Hispanic wrestler that wrestled in a variety of places. I can... This has got to be 1950s but I can't pin down a location based on any of this really, uh, except uh, it was it, 
Was it somewhere in the Midwest or in the, the central states because of Bobby Bruns? And I would say 19... I don't know what angel it was. Bulldog Lee Hennig. He wasn't the bulldog then. 1952. You're right. There aren't a lot of clues here. The town, San Francisco, California. Son of a bitch. August 26, 1947. Ah, okay. Well, San Francisco <laughs> was not a big name, or not a big name, not a big money town back then in those days as well, as you can see from that lineup. And it, except for Leo Namalini in the 50s, it wouldn't really be a major money town under, you know, the uh, Joe Mankiewicz, the promoter, until Roy Shire came in and got television and transformed the thing. So, yeah, what a lineup. Was that, was that, was that at the Winterland? Was that at the Civic Auditorium? It does not specify here. These are really cool programs. I got a pretty big collection. I'm going to call Western Wrestling, and they're just filled with advertisements for everything happening in San Francisco, all the restaurants <laughs> and everything. So it's really cool. Uh, it does not specify what building it's in, no. Presidential Follies, Club Hollywood Dinners, Drink Coca-Cola, The Dolores Club, Time Never Lags at The Dolores Club, Cal's Coffee Shop, Andy Wong's Sky Room. Yeah, nothing about what building this is actually in. But Jim, uh, this program I had here, I want to mention to you before we wrap I used things to up. Go, I used to go to Andy Wang's Black and Blue Room. Oh, well, as I was saying, I had something to tell you about here. This is a program from Nashville, Tuesday night, November 4th, 1952, Hippodrome West End, under Matt Gossip by Nick Goulas. Yes. Realizing the immense interest in the 1952 presidential election, we who stage the weekly wrestling matches at the Hippodrome will keep our fans fully informed on the progress of the election Tuesday night. Returns will be announced as soon as they are received and our special news telephone, a direct wire with tabulating officials. If you come to the Hippodrome, you may be assured that you will know the progress of the election just as quickly, or perhaps even quicker, than if you remain at home. So whether you're voting for Adlai or Ike, come out for Tuesday night's card and get a double measure of pleasure. <laughs> a double measure of pleasure? That had to be Nick. It's interesting. You never think about wrestling... You know, I guess when things were more local, it makes a lot of sense announcing the election results at the card. Well, yeah, well, and that was, that's the presidential election, so it didn't have to be local. But see, that was the thing, is that that was, a, you know, a big deal, and you stayed at home to, you know, nobody could go out places and be assured of knowing what the results were, what the latest news was. So you stayed home and, and either watched TV, or at that point, a lot of people still listening to the radio. So they said, hey, come on down. We'll let you know what's going on. That's pretty smart. Was that the, that the Slamogram? No, that is not the Slamogram. That is Nashville Wrestling News featuring wrestling, the only year-round <laughs> sport. Let me open this up. I have it in a protective thing here. Because I didn't even tell you what the card was. The card here is listed as... Well, now, Slamogram was, so that you're opening it up, the Slamograms that Jerry Jarrett started out selling when he was seven years old or whatever, they were just a front and back sheet and went for a nickel. 
Actually, there are no matches listed here. This seems more like just a general wrestling news information. Hmm. Oh, here we go. Here we go. Forgive me. Uh-oh. The Zebra Kid versus Kelly. Riley and Chief Lone Eagle with Bonita versus Kashi, King Kong Kashi, and Roberts. And double main event, ladies. That'd grudge, be Rowdy Red Roberts. Ladies grudge battle, Miss Byers versus Miss May. June Byers and was that Violet May? Miss Ida May. Ida May. I, it was. It'd be Ida May Martinez, right? I, I think so, based on the picture here. Yeah. Yeah. Art Eight, Nelson, two hundred and twenty pounds, former Black Phantom, returns here next uh, first week of December. There you go. Art Nelson was everywhere. And I think in Nashville, especially probably more than any other city in the country that I've seen, the women, whether it be uh, Mildred Burke, June Byers, or that, you know, that era, Cora Combs, because she was from up the road in eastern Kentucky, they main evented Nashville more often than probably any city in the country. And and Mildred Burke was in main events, and they did do main events in those days with the women's matches, but it was often in Nashville. They were over. And maybe, maybe I think also Roy Welch was quite a ladies' man, so. The promoter and matchmaker Nick Goulas, State Tennessee Athletic Inspectors Rutledge Smith and R.M. Herridges, the ticket agents Jimmy and Ed Thalman, Christine Jarrett, Mohawk Harrison, and James Wright Sr., the cashiers... As, wait a minute. James Wright Sr. was, I believe, Teeny's father. Oh, interesting. Because her mother used to come every once in a while to Louisville in the early in the, the early days of me being a photographer and being in the back, Mama Wright. Because Bob Wright, who was the accountant, was her nephew, or would have been Jerry's Cause I can't remember, but was anyway, she, was she also related to Mohawk Harrison? No, I think he was outside the family. <laughs> Cashiers: Bill Sheridan and Gene Pitts. The announcer: Jack Simpson and the timekeeper: Elkin Lewis. And there it is. Guess the program. And with that, <laughs> we wrap up another episode of the Drive Through. We've gone a long time. We have a lot more to watch and record and review and record. And there's a lot going on. Songs return next time. Any closing words here this week, Jim? Yes. Close it up, Brian. Well, you guys know the usual thing. We'll give you the usual wrap next week. But for Jim Cornette, I'm the great Brian Last. Hear us on the Jim Cornette Experience this weekend. Big WrestleMania reviews coming at you. Check out the YouTube channel. But until then, tally ho! Well, it's Jim Cornette's drive-thru. Yes, it's Jim Cornette's drive-thru. Please shut up and listen while Corny is shooting. Yes, while Corny is shooting on Big Fucking Putin and those outlaw macho fucks. Joey Ryan, the young bucks, the rednecks and dumb fucks, and them dork order bomb fucks. And then there's Jelly Janella and Santino Marella, the boogeyman, the boogeyman, the boogeyman. Corny's drive through. Corny's drive through. Through. Well, it's all elite wrestling. Tony Khan is investing his billions of dollars in some dumb cosplay wrestlers. Yeah, they think they are wrestlers in video games just like Kenny Omega.
pledge allegiance to the leader of the mighty cult of Cornets and to the pro wrestling for which he stands. No blow-up dolls, kick spots, or dance routines with blood, sellouts, and shoot angles for all. And have you heard about Riho? She weighs 45 kilos and she's their champion. She's a Japanese schoolgirl. All the Japanese schoolgirls like Kenny Omega love to play with his Sega. Yeah, they play with his Sega. You need to sue the guy for you. Steven, Pedro, everybody. Connie's drive-thru. Connie's drive-thru. Gonies drive through. Gonies drive through. And now, here are your hosts, Jim Cornette and the great Brian Lass. <laughs>